2: you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, and you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chickie Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guest that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917 889
1: Just call 888-441-7290 or go to com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern com, and click on the icon for my patry food. All right. Welcome back to another adventure here. You're here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, Ah, oh, the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Of course, I'm your hostess with the mostest, the radio chick, Annie, along with my debonair and erudite co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. How are you today?
3: Well, I'm coming along. I just, I just appreciate the fact that we live in some exciting, plus you know, scary times, and I'm interested in how how you know it all is going to pan out.
0: <laughs>
3: but we'll see in 2020. We are,
1: <laughs> we are li- living in some very very interesting times. We got a lot to talk about. Um, I'll try not to lose my cookies because I know somewhere along the way during the show, someone's going to mention the Democratic debates. And, oh, please. I just, it's unwatchable. I'm, I can't even talk about it. That's how disgusting this stuff is. Yeah.
0: Anyway, we have
1: more you. to talk about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. I <laughs> uh, just want to uh, give a shout out to our friends over at SHR Media. Uh, last night I was a guest on the Berserk Bobcat Saloon, and you want to hear Annie completely unleashed? <laughs> yeah, Annie cursing too. Uh not the normal tame person she is on her own show and uh, Annie just let it cut loose last night on uh, on their show on SHR media. It's not up on their website yet, but uh there should be a link either on my show page um or somewhere along the way. I'll make sure that we get it out there. Uh but uh, it was uh-huh. it was a lot of fun and I want to thank the guys for giving me the opportunity to do that. And uh one of our guests here is uh you know, if it wasn't for for the fact that someone sent me a very lovely text message, kicked me in the butt because I had gotten, I have I have a bunch of publicists that send me their authors, their 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 clients, and that's how I get a lot of my guests because I do have a number of publicists. Uh, they may be book publishers or they just may be you know out there a general agent uh, dealing with different celebrities. Um, and I had gotten. A publicist sending me, hey, listen, check out this book. Check out this guy. He writes for National Review. And I put it aside. I mean, I've got so many things I've got going on. What's another person The book? Uh, but a great friend of the show, Sweet Sue, sent me a text and said, hey, listen, you've got to have this guy on. And I said, that name sounds familiar. So I did a little research. And oh, lo and behold, yeah. So I called up the agent. And we do have that gentleman, Kevin Williamson, is going to be joining us uh Halfway through the show, he writes for National Review and has a new book out called The Smallest Minority Independent Thinking in an Age of Mob Politics. And if you're looking at what has been going on over the last several months, much less the last 12 years, you're talking about mob politics. So we're going to have him on. We're also going to have Tony Price returning. He is the one that has the Gold Star Ride. Uh, he's got a whole mess of bookings. He's got through April uh, families that he's out there helping. So we're gonna we're glad to help him. And then we have friends of yours, uh, Curtis. I'm gonna probably mispronounce her name wrongly. It's Cayenne. Is that her? How she pronounced her first name? Yep. Cayenne. Cayenne and, and, and Bobby. And Bobby. Cayenne, and Bobby, and Michael. 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 Uh, they are an angel family. They lost their son to an illegal immigrant and a young man with a lot of promise, a man that was engaged to be married. So again, we've got great guests, a lot to talk about, and a lot happening on the show today. Uh, And if I sound a little tired, I have to apologize. Um, We've got some crazy weather coming in, uh, and it it has a way of affecting me. And I woke up with a tremendous, tremendous migraine headache, which just left me a little while ago. So if I found my sound like I've been through the ringer. (laughs) Yeah, I have. And if anyone suffers from migraines, you know what I'm talking about when you suffer from one of these. Uh, But we will soldier on. And, you know, I, I had something I wanted to talk about before we got into our dedication. And lo and behold, you know, Annie, put it somewhere. Good Lord. I'm losing my mind. I really am losing my mind here, Curtis.
3: Hey, after all, this, it's Friday. <laughs> you could do that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, no, someone had written an editorial and correlating it with um, suicides and gun ownership, as well as, um, you know, it's probably right underneath my nose. And I'll be damned. I'm going to probably find it five minutes after we get off the air. Son of a bee. I hate when I misplace things. Anyway, um, try and equate gun ownership uh, or these states that have strict gun laws uh, with suicide rates, uh, saying how come California and New York have a lower suicide rate than anywhere else in the country. Uh, The guy's an economist, and I will find that article because I did respond to it. Otherwise, I'm going to have to go onto my blog page and pull it up, which might be a logical thing to do uh, so I can talk about it. But in the interim, those that listen to the show know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And before we want to get into that, I want to thank those that are listening to us up in the studio and those that are here listening to us on Blog Talk Radio and those that will show up in the SHR studio I am not on Facebook or YouTube today. I'm trying to record it onto my computer. If it records successfully and I get all audio the way I should, I will then upload it onto YouTube and Facebook later on. Um, But because I have such a problem with it, um, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to take that chance today. But again, thank you for joining me in the chat and bearing with me as I ramble on. Uh, but today's dedication, Curtis, is going to go out to not one or two, but to four uh, fallen heroes. It's going to go out to Captain Andrew P- Patrick Ross, Sergeant First Class Eric Michael Emond, Staff Sergeant Dylan Elchin, and Staff uh, and Sergeant Jason Mitchell McClary. They were attacked by an IED during Operation Freedom's Sentinel. Ross, Eamond, and Elgin died on November 27th of 2018. McClary succumbed to his wounds on December 2nd of that same year. And this is coming from multiple sources, the first of which is from the Fallen and in the Military Times. Excuse me, uh, I'm starting to lose my voice here. It begins, Department of Defense released the identities of three U.S. special operation troops killed during combat operations in Afghanistan. Two Army Green Berets and an Air Force combat controller were killed on Tuesday, November twenty-second, 27th of 2018 by an improvised explosive device in eastern Afghan province of Ghanzi. Two Army special forces, Soldiers were Captain Andrew Patrick Ross, 29, of Lexington, Virginia, and Sergeant First Class Eric Michael Emond, 39, of Brush Prairie, Washington. The two were assigned to 1st Battalion 3rd Special Forces Group out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Andrew and Eric were invaluable members and leaders in 3rd Special Forces Group and Special Operations Community. Our most heartfelt condolences go out to the families of these brave men, said Colonel Nathan Preston, the third group commander. Special Tactics Airman was Staff Sergeant Dylan Elchin, 29, of Hookstown, Pennsylvania. He was assigned to the 26th Special Tactics Squadron at Cannon Air Force Base, New Mexico. Dylan was the guy everyone wanted to be around. In even the worst of times, he had a smile on his face and a way of lightening things up, a special tactics officer and former team leader of Elgin said in his statement. He was always going wherever it took to get the job done. Dylan had an unusual drive to succeed and to contribute to the team. He displayed maturity and stoicism beyond his years and was always level headed, no matter the situation said Lieutenant Colonel Gregory Walsh, commander of the 26th Special Tactics Squadron. Our thoughts and prayers go out to Dylan's family, fiancé, and friends. He will be sorely missed, but never forgotten. The service members died from injuries sustained when their vehicle was struck by an IAD in Andor Province, Ganzi Province. I'm sorry, the Andor District of the Ganzi Province. The deaths raised the number of U.S. troops killed in combat in Afghanistan to 13 for 2018. Of the three troops killed, Iman had been in the military the longest, at more than 21 years. He had served in the Marine Corps and the Army. This was his seventh overseas tour. The Pentagon also identified a fourth casualty from the improvised explosive device that claimed the lives of three special operations troops and left three other Americans wounded. Sergeant Jason Mitchell McClary died in Lungsdow, Germany as a result of injuries sustained from the IAD blast that occurred in the Andar district. McClary, 24 was from Export, Pennsylvania. He was an infantryman assigned to the 1st Battalion, 38th Infantry Regiment, 1st Stryker Brigade, the 4th Infantry Division out of Fort Carson, Colorado. The Rock Battalion expresses its deepest sympathies and condolences to the family and friends tragically affected by the loss of Sergeant Jason McCleary. He epitomizes what is to be a professional a warrior and a soldier. Lieutenant Colonel Christopher Roberts, commander of the 1st Battalion, 38th Infantry Regiment said in a statement, McCleary served honorably as an up-armored vehicle gunner for the attack company. His memory and contributions will never be forgotten. McCleary had been in Afghanistan since April. Prior to that, he served in Iraq from May of 2016 to January of 2017. And this is from thepilot.com. Captain Andrew Patrick Ross lived only three miles away from Sergeant First Class Eric Michael Eamon. Ross, 29, from Virginia, had recently moved into a new home with his wife near Old Bethanasia Church in Aberdeen. The couple married in February, not long before Ross was sent on his second tour to Afghanistan. Emond, 39, lived in a nearby cul-de-sac with his wife and three young daughters. A Boston native with more than 20 years of military experience, Iman had been summoned to Afghanistan for his seventh overseas tour. Both men were assigned to the 1st Battalion, 3rd Special Forces Group at Fort Bragg. They were traveling in the Ganze province when a roadside bomb ripped through their armored vehicle. Ross and Iman were killed in the blast. Staff Sergeant Dylan J. Elchin, a 25-year-old Pennsylvania native, on his first deployment also perished. Elchin was assigned to the 26th Special Tactics Squadron. It was the deadliest attack in 2018 on U.S. forces in Afghanistan. The Taliban claimed responsibility for the bombing, which injured three other service members and an American contractor. And from WRIC.com. Governor Ralph Northam also had ordered flags to be flown at half-staff. I've known Drew since he was a baby, he spoke of Ross. One of Ross's former teachers and family friend, David Miller, told Eat News, knew him from day one. Ross is remembered as a kind, energetic family man who also loved his dogs. It doesn't make it any easier for any of us that this happened. But he went in with his eyes wide open and understanding that his job was dangerous and difficult, he added. Ross married his wife, Felicia, in February. And 8 News obtained clips of the wedding and spoke with the videographer at the wedding, Bobby Craig of Landmark Film Company. Just to get to hang with him and his friends, Craig told 8 News. They just, man, they were a tight-knit, tight-knit brotherhood. Just very proud of Drew and miss him every day, he said. And from the Herald News, Iman, 39, a married father of three and a member of the elite United States Army Special Forces was killed when an improvised explosive device detonated, hitting his unit's vehicle. He leaves behind his beloved wife, Allie, and their three children, his sister, Laura, and extended family, as well as many veterans and service members and friends who love and respect and admired him. Eric Eamon, a warrior, a gentleman, one of the very best our nation had called on to serve in the defense of our core values, said Fall River Superintendent of Schools, Matthew Malone. The decorated soldier died while on his seventh tour of duty. During his military career, he earned more than a dozen awards, including two Purple Hearts and three Bronze Stars. The two other soldiers killed were Captain Andrew P. Ross, who was a member with Edmund of the 3rd Special Forces, and Air Force Staff Sergeant Dylan J. Elgin. Malone, who himself served eight years in the Marines, expressed gratitude for having known Imond, who he met through the local veterans community. Sergeant Eamon was a founding member of the Massachusetts Fallen Heroes, a veteran service organization whose mission is to support Gold Star families and the veterans community of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. He attended Osborne Elementary School, Healy Elementary School, Henry Lord Middle School, and BMC Durfee High School before moving to Arkansas in 96 for the 10th grade. While at Durfee, Edmund was on the wrestling team, said Malone, and was a strong student throughout. The two teams quickly become confident with E. We hung out every day, and he was just genuinely a great guy. The type who'd give you the shirt off his back. My heart goes out to his family and to all the people he touched in his life. He was truly a special person. And then from the com. Dozens of airmen from Elchin's unit, the 26th Special Tactics Squadron based in Cannon Air Force Base in New Mexico, and the 24th Special Operations Wing at Florida's Herbert Field traveled across the country to Moon Township to join the fallen airman's family and pay respects to the brother-at-arms who gave his life in the line of duty. His sense of duty was his prime focus, Elchin's brother Aaron, himself an Army veteran, told CBS News. That's what he lived for. It's what his heart beat for. It was a solemn procession, but less than a week earlier, members of Elgin's squadron had assembled to honor his service in the tradition of fallen Air Force Special Operations Forces who came before him with one burning addition. The Viking Age Norse ship burial ceremony, commonly referred to as the Viking funeral, is one of the oldest burial customs in human memory. A tribute reserved to only the noblest or distinct warriors. When two members of the 26th Special Tactics Squadron learned of Elton's death, it was the first thing that came to mind. After we got the news, we spent some time being sad, but we immediately thought we have to honor Dylan, a true hero, one of the tactics airmen who spoke on condition of anonymity to hold tax and purpose. The whole warrior culture is very prevalent in the special operations community. And I'm sure you see these super hard types on Twitter and Instagram and stuff, he added. But Dylan wasn't some Viking or lone wolf. He was a warrior professionally. Within hours of hearing the news of Elchin's death, the airmen and other Elchin partners, during his pre-deployment at JTAC training, immediately got to work on an unofficial memorial to the Fallen Warrior, an ad hoc Viking longship. They bought lumber and scrounging scrap wood from the area surrounding Cannon Air Force Base, working around the clock for 36 hours. The final result was a vessel about the height and length of a full-size Toyota Tundra. None of us had woodworking experience, the airman said. It was trial and error. On the evening of December 1st, just days after Elgin's death in Afghanistan, a group of 80 people assembled for the pyre. Without access to a body of water, the airmen secured permission to relocate to a nearby farm. A fire truck from the local fire department idled nearby on standby just in case the flames got out of hand. A lot of people came out to support. Other people from the unit, their family members, It was an unofficial memorial, the airmen said. With their family and fellow airmen assembled, an airman launched a flaming arrow into the sail of the Viking vessel, which quickly burst into flames. Unofficial memorials are common among special operators lost since the Gulf War and terror. But as far as the airmen could tell, such a pyre was not a common thing. What followed next, however, was far more common. As the fire burned, the assembled crowd raised their glasses in honor of Elgin and gave one toast. Here's to the men that wear the beret, not blue, not black, black, nor tan, not gray, but the maroon and the red we wear on our head, like the blood our brothers before us have shed. May we all grow old together and never die, so we may tell the stories of why we fly, the blood, the sweat, the tears we give. First there that others may live. We really try to honor our teammates the best way we can. Here's a huge part of our culture as the memory and remembrance of our fallen comrades have died, the airman said. Dylan was dedicated. He did it all for his country. He was a patriot. He lived a simple life with purpose. And finally, from WPXI in honor of Sergeant Jason Michael McCleary, the last to die at Langstall, Germany. As a result of his injuries, he suffered while in Andar province. McCleary survived by his wife and two sons. He was assigned to the 1st Battalion, 38th Infantry Regiment. And from his wife, I sat there and I held his hand and I told him what the kids had been up to and what the baby had learned, said Lily McCleary, as she described the final moments by her husband's bedside. She told Channel 11 he suffered a massive stroke after coming into contact with the IAD on patrol. I had to make the decision to take him off his breathing tube and to just let nature take its course, she said. It was something we had gone over before, he said, if he was ever hurt and never going to make it back to a normal life, he said, let me go and move on with life. The two had known each other most of their lives, going to Kiske Area School District together. After this deployment, Jason was planning to get out of the military to spend more time with his family. He realized how much he was missing. He loved his job more than anything, but he still wanted to give it up to be home with me and the kids, she said. Even though he's gone, he still left me a whole future that he has built for me. I get to live with my kids, and I can't thank him enough for that. Today's show is dedicated to these four heroes. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women that serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into its future. And we also dedicate this show to all the brave men and women that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Harrington my name is america may god bless each and every one
0: I've paid with the blood of my people Freedom has never been free Now my door's always open To dreamers and friends When I'm attacked I protect and deal
1: All right, and we're back. You're here you're listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star. Dealing is up on iTunes Stitches. We oh, got the heck with it. Of course, you know what I'm going to say next. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle of Southern hyphen sense dot com. Of course, you're my hostess with the most just the radio chick, any? along with my handsome co host, Curtis. Has said it. Good afternoon, Curtis. Oh, man.
3: Hey, you know how to make a guy blush. I do
1: get work. <laughs> yeah. I, I do get a little worked up when I do these dedications, and I mean, sometimes I just get a little to me. Uh, so I apologize for that. Anyway, I want to welcome again everyone that's showing up in the chat room. Thank you. Some of the guys I see here, with some of the ones that were <laughs> putting up with a weird Annie last night <laughs> over at uh, Ber- Berserk Bobcat uh, Saloon last night, uh, we did have a blast over there up on A Side Jar Media. Uh, I do feel like sometimes a redheaded stepchild by SHR media. Cause it was the first time after all these years, someone invited me on one of their shows. Uh, but we had a lot of fun. So, uh, check out SHR media by going to SHR com. Anyway, uh, Curtis, before we went on the break and before I did the dedication, I was talking about this op ed piece, uh, that this clown put on. And would you know, it's of course in the new LA times. Um, it was written by a professor. He is a dean at, I believe it's Chapman. Yeah. Uh, he's an economics professor and president emeritus of Chapman University. Now, I am going to read his editorial because, you know, if people listen to this, this crap, this guy wrote, uh, you would be pissed. And we'll break it. I'm not, we not read
3: surprised, it. though.
1: <laughs> so the guy's name is James Dottie, D-O-T-I. <laughs> Good last name for this guy. He's Dotty. <laughs> I probably pronounce Doty. Uh, anyway, he writes that the fascinating thing about economic research is that it moves in ways that often can't be anticipated. Sometimes your assumptions are upended. Well, when I get done with him, he's upended. As a matter of fact, I did uh, forward a copy of my response to him, and I have not received a response back from him because I guess he doesn't have too much to say. He writes further, I was recently a part of a research team, Uh uh-oh, here's the problem right there, Uh, that showed that people living in states with relatively high taxes tended over time to move to, to states with lower taxes. Case in point, states with the highest rate of taxation, New Jersey, California, and New York, have the highest levels and rates of net outward migration. Gee, it didn't take an economic professor to determine that, did it? Uh, if anyone asks me why I left New York for South Carolina, outside of the weather, it would have been the high rate of taxation and liberal politics. It doesn't take a ton of research to figure that one out, professor. Any brain surgeon can tell you that California is migrating to Texas. Unfortunately, taking the politics with them. So now he goes further on, and you can tell I'm rather snarky today. It goes further on is that I was recently, of course, in the course of that research, I came across statistics that showed New Jersey, California, and New York as having the lowest rates of suicide. How can it be that the three states with the highest tax rates can also have the lowest suicide rates? Uh, Taxation... Rates and suicide rates really do not correspond. I've never known of a suicide that I've responded to as a police officer that occurred because Uncle Sam was taxing them too much. If anything, people would refuse to pay the taxes and let Uncle Sam come after them. Uh, But I've never known anyone to commit suicide because the IRS or New York State or New Jersey or California tax services were coming after them. And they commit suicide because of drug addiction, alcohol addiction, family problems, domestic violence. I can think of a ton of other reasons why people will commit suicide, but not because they're taxed too high. So here's the biggest part of his logic. Uh, He further goes on, perhaps higher taxes allowed for greater funding levels for suicide prevention or mental health programs. Let's t- ponder that one. Mm. Higher levels for suicide prevention or mental health programs. Um, that's a possibility. Uh, but when I see people being taxed at higher levels, I see a lot of that money going into their crony politician pockets uh, in roadways. in Oh, can we talk about Baltimore here, Professor, where they've gotten ooh, something like 2.6 million dollars a month of federal grant and funding money, and yet we don't see it going into a city full of crime and rats. Okay, that doesn't completely follow through in the logic. He further goes on, or more likely, I thought this was simply a spurious relationship and there was something else going on to explain suicide rates. But what was something else? My eureka moment... Well, obviously it wasn't because you became a Republican, uh, came when further research revealed that high-tax states like New Jersey, California, and New York are among the lowest in rates of gun ownership. How about because they have the highest rate of gun control? And in order to own a gun in New York, you've got to jump through 15,000 different hoops. And even then, they restrict the gun ownership to the point where until recently, they only allowed – Police officers for having to have only seven bullets in their guns, or seven rounds in their guns, even though the bad guys can have a 16 or maybe a, a, a double clip attached to their firearm, holding maybe more than 20 rounds. Ah, uh, no, but no, that that might not be the purpose. So he's blaming it on low rates of gun ownership saying that low suicide rates. Now, we're going to correlate this a little bit further in my response. And he says, at the same time, states like Montana, South Dakota, and Wyoming have something else in common besides low tax rates. They have high rates in gun ownership. Half of all high suicide rates are caused by firearms. This is true, and that fact is true. Over the last decade, the number of U.S. suicides by firearms has increased almost 20%. However, he does not state in this over the last decades, suicide rates across the nation have increased by approximately 20%. The only state where it is actually going down, 1%, is in Wyoming. And he further goes on to say, claiming the lives of nearly 22,000 Americans every year. Um, we have suicide is now the tenth leading cause of death in the U.S. Now I can keep on going on and on and on about the statistics he pulls up. However, I did a little research on Professor Doty's statistics. And this is my response. So hold on to your seats, folks. And I didn't delve into his entire thing. I just simply wrote back that I'm glad I did not have Professor Doty as my college economics uh, course. While his op-ed piece is interesting his conclusion is faulty. His basis his findings on suicide relates in relation to state taxation rates and gun ownership. He does not specify if it's legal or illegal gun possession. We'll let that fact pass. I will agree that approximately 50% of successful suicides occur with firearms. However, he neglects to include unsuccessful or aborted attempts and the methods used. Of the 129 suicides that occurred daily 22 or more are by our military veterans who would have a higher probability of access to or of gun ownership. A Harvard study on lethality of suicide attempts states that a number of factors are theorized to influence the lethality of a given method. The first is inherent deadliness. For example, car exhaust with a high CO2 level will be more deadly than a car exhaust with low CO2 level. The second is ease of use. A method that requires technological knowledge is less accessible than one that does not. The third is accessibility. Given the brief brief duration of some suicide crises, a lethal dose of pills on the nightstand poses a greater danger than a prescription that must be hoarded over months to accumulate a lethal dose. Similarly, Now catch this one. A gun in the closet poses a greater risk than a high bridge five miles away, even if both methods have equal lethality if used. The fourth is ability to abort mid-attempt. More people start an attempt and abort, than carry it through. Therefore, methods can be interrupted without harm mid-attempt, such as an overdose, cutting, CO poisoning, and hanging suffocation. Offer a window of opportunity for rescue or change of heart that guns and jumps do not. The fifth factor is acceptability to the attempter. Although fire, for example, is universally acceptable, accessible, it is rarely used in the US for suicide. Per mentalhealthamerica.net, there is one death by suicide for every 25 attempts therefore it stands to reason that individuals who employ a firearm as mode of attempt are more likely to succeed furthermore the same site states 40 percent of persons who complete suicide have made a previous attempt nine out of ten people who attempt suicide and survive do not go on to complete suicide at a later date poisoning, drugs, overdoses are the most preferred method of attempted suicide and have the highest rate of failure or interruption compromising 71% of all attempts. And this is found at thetrace.org. So while 82% of attempts by firearm are successful, only 1.5% by poisoning or drugs are successful. So if we apply Professor Doty's logic, reducing access to drugs and poisons would be far more advantageous to preventing suicide attempts and aid in mental health treatments and therapies. I can only personally conclude that Professor Doty's intention of his op-ed piece is to further the cause of gun control policy wonks at the expense of our Second Amendment rights and freedom-loving Americans. What's your thought on that, Curtis?
3: I think the guy is, Did I, uh, I think the guy's crazy. <laughs> I mean, people, people are leaving these areas because of economic um, oppression, if you want to ask me, you know, places like California, New York, and you mentioned New Jersey. Um, they're not coming, as I stated in the chat room not coming to places like Florida and, and Texas because of Disney World and Alamo, because they're tired of being taxed and and regulated. That's that's my thought, no, Professor.
1: No, you know, a person will move because of of taxation and regulation. They don't commit suicide over it. A person commits suicide nah. because there is something. There's a mental illness here. I mean. Uh, I've, I have a family member that has attempted this several times, and um, it is sometimes a subject very dear to me because I've also left, lost friends to suicide. And the person that commits suicide doesn't think about the people they're, they're leaving behind. It actually happens to be a very selfish action, the act of suicide. Because all they're doing is thinking about themselves and no one else. They're locked in their own world, and it becomes a mental illness. And it needs to be treated as a mental illness. You know, you I, I, I may sound cold and and callous when I say that, when you consider that 22 of these suicides that occur out of 129 a day are of our military men and women, veterans and active duty. And I have to add in now a large number of police officers are now committing suicide. In New York alone, within the last month, as of I, as I know of yesterday, in New York City alone, four police officers committed suicide. That means the pressures that are being put are on them, which are not economic, these are social pressures. These are domestic pressures. These are pressures that are being put on these men and women that they can't deal with. They are not being treated for what they need whether it's ptsd or the traumatic brain injury if it's because they can't cope with getting back into civilian society that there's no one out there to give them that hand up they need to get their life together these are the mental illnesses we need to be dealing with to prevent suicides not saying that simply because you are a pro-gun ownership state that you're causing suicides no Let's look at the root cause of what suicides, what causes suicides, what causes people to attempt them. And then maybe also look at why people don't attempt them a second time. Why is it that 70% of people that attempt suicide never go on to attempt it again? What caused them to change their mind? And maybe we can use that in a mental treatment and use it to prevent further suicides. And, you know, his, it is very obvious from his editorial, that he is someone that wants gun control. It's a con job, his article. And yet you will find people to the left will flock to it and say, well, look, this economic professor pulled the numbers out. He did the math and proved equivocally that high state areas with gun control have fewer suicides. Therefore, ergo, guns cause suicide." The logic is faulty, but then again, you think of these states such as California, New York, and New Jersey that have high rates of opioid abuse, and how many suicide attempts are there by overdoses, were whether accidental or intentional suicides? And yes, you can accidentally overdose and be considered a suicide because if you're a drug addict, knowing if you take that drug again, you might possibly die. You know, it, 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 they don't look at the truth behind what the numbers are throwing, but they have they have something to sell, and that sale is gun control. And his excuse is, let's crunch the numbers, make them work the way we want them to work, and then convince everyone else that this is good public policy. And that's the whole thing behind it. And Warp points out they're doing the same thing with gun control as they're doing with global warming. Make the numbers fit your, your conclusion. Instead of letting the numbers speak for its own conclusion, we have the conclusion, let's force the numbers into it, is what they are doing. And, and that's, this is what we have to battle. And unless we face them head on, and this is what I say, politics is local. This appeared in my local paper, even though this was published in the LA, LA Times back on July 23rd. So why would the editorial, uh, the, the, the editorial staff of my local communist rag called the Buford Gazette, Island Packet, um, print this editorial at this time? Because they want to promote the gun control message in a pro-gun state. Look to see what the purpose is, folks. Look to see why this editorial at this time and here and now. There's a purpose to it. And when I say all politics is local, this is the influence. Knowing so well here in the state of South Carolina, like in Texas and in other red states, people are coming to us because of less regulation and less taxation. They are bringing their liberal politics with them. And unless we stop them here and now, like Texas, we're going to see it turn purple, like Florida is turning purple. And we've got to stop it and bring the red tide back. That's my rant for now. Pretty clean considering what I did last night on the Berserk <laughs> Bobcat show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, well, we've, we've got in a few minutes, our first guest is going to be calling in. Tony Price is going to be returning. He's got the Gold Star Ride uh, organization. Um and he actually changed his flights. He was going to be flying out today because he's got a series of Gold Star rides he's going to be doing across the nation to support these the families of these fallen men and hero in our mil uh, men and women heroes in our military. Um, Did now, you say where he's where he's flying out of. Head. <laughs> no, 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 no. I we were, we were texting each other back and forth last night. Uh, so I, I apologize. Like I said, I had a bad migraine earlier today, so I'm not exactly thinking clearly. But uh, otherwise, <laughs> excuse me, otherwise, uh, I don't even know what I was going to talk about now, Curtis. I just lost my complete train of thought.
3: <laughs> well, we can always pick on the Democrats. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's not hard to do. And you know, um oh here's here's a good one to to pick on. Uh Pete I, I can never pronounce his last name, Buddha Judge. I I have a yeah, like pronouncing that. his last name. And it it's not a polite <laughs> <laughs> it's politically incorrect another way I pronounce his last name. Yeah. In his in his argument um with the Democrats, he used a biblical verse and i know i had that article somewhere around here too uh he was provo- quoting proverbs proverbs 14 verse 31 and i will paraphrase because i'm just going to go off the top of my memory on what it said and basically in proverbs uh in that uh verse of, a section of proverbs 14 um they're talking about being a good person a person faithful to God and being a person not of God and how to deal in your life and with your fellow man. And they talk about the wife having the good home or the wife abandoning her home. They talk about uh, all different types of things, all different aspects of your life. And in this one verse, 1431 of Proverbs, it talks about how to handle the poor and they talk about being good and generous to the poor compared to treating them roughly. And be, but whatever, Mayor Pete, let me just go the easy route, Mayor Pete, um, use that quote as an excuse for the $15 an hour minimum wage. Now you think about what God calls on us to do is to voluntarily give of our own heart. And we give of what we feel that we can afford to give, be it everything we have or be it some of what we have. And we will be judged by what we give and how much we give. Uh, But nowhere does the Lord mandate, tell us that you must, especially when you consider that the New Testament nullifies all the laws of the Old Testament, and the New Testament just says two commandments. Love thy Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy mind. And the next is like unto it, love thy neighbor as thyself. Thus lay all the law and the Proverbs on these two commandments. So Judge is trying to tell us that the good Lord told us because of Proverbs 14.31 that we must pay a $15 an hour minimum wage. That's not what the verse tells you. The verse tells you to treat the poor kindly. It it tells tells you not to mistreat them, to treat them kindly. And in treating them kindly, you help them to get a job. You help them to find a home. You help them to find a steady place in your community. Giving them a free handout is not helping them up. If anything, makes them reliable upon that mandated handout because, hey, I don't have to go to work because I've got food stamps. I've got Section 8 housing. I've got welfare. I can sit here at home and collect all these government benefits, not pay a dollar in rent, not have to work a day in my life, get free internet so I can watch as many videos and TV shows as I want, get a free Obama phone so I can text and and FaceTime with all my friends whenever I want. I don't have to lift up. Finger and food will come to my table And Lord Almighty Already pre-prepared So I just throw it in the microwave That's not being Generous to the needy That is making that See, person Dependent upon them And more yeah. needy of you That is being cruel to them Go ahead Curtis
3: Yeah that's the problem with the, the Democrats and Socialists And their, um, their um, Party their ideas aren't re- readily accepted by by people, so they feel they have to to um, compel or mandate that people, you know, sign on to their programs, like the Affordable Care Act, which is anything but affordable. You know, they they wanted to fine you if you didn't sign up for it, and I think that's one of the downfalls of the Democrat Party that no one really wants their ideas or their policies because you have to be compelled or mandated to um, sign on to them. And it, it goes against everything that this country stands for, you know, freedom of choice. So no, I, I think I'm starting to wake up to that.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I had a, a very hard lesson, and not too long ago, just a handful of years ago, and I, I am, I, I consider myself a generous nature, uh, a generous natured person. When I see someone in need, you know, I will go and give whatever hand I can. You know, I've I've been known to read about an article where someone got burned out of their home, and I'll show up with some clothing. And I'm, one woman lost everything, and I had a spare computer. And she was going to school, and I says, well, you lost everything. Well, hopefully the school can help you get it all back. And I gave her the computer, you know, bedroom sets that we had. My husband and I had been cleaning out a house, and this stuff was all going to go to the dump, but perfectly good bedroom sets. We loaded them up onto the trailer and brought them over so she was able to move into an apartment and have everything. I'll do that, you know, and then, you know, I'll see someone – meet on the street and just have pull out of my pocket a couple of dollars and just keep on going. You know, we all have that in us that we want to help people. But once in a while you get the reality slapped in your face in such a manner and here you think you're doing something good for someone and then when the truth hits you, it's like whoa, I just got taken for the class A fool, the biggest A hole in the neighborhood. And it's happened to me. And we had, uh, my mother had, you know, a property here that she rented out when she was not here. And we had a couple that was, you know, in need, you know, friends of ours. And that's rule number one: never do this with a friend or a relative. Always do help for a stranger, <laughs> because you'll get stabbed in the back even harder. And we rented the place out. I mean, at dirt cheap rent. I mean, well below market rent. Um, we barely paid the taxes on the property with what they paid us the entire year when and i will say that in capital letters when they paid in so much as that i had the electricity and the water under my name i was paying that when they paid it with when they paid their rent and um, she was working part-time he was going to school and he said, well, I'm disabled. So I'm getting social security disability and they're paying for my college. And I said, all right, fine. You know, I love to cook. I love to jar stuff. I love to make things and I bring them food and stuff. Well, after going through about a year and a half of no rent and no paying, and I actually bought them their wedding rings when they got married and stood in for them when they got married um, never got paid for the wedding rings. And after they left and we were cleaning up the place, uh, the place was kind of like destroyed. The food that I brought over, still in the jars and the containers, were tossed over the back fence, never opened. And if that wasn't a kick in the teeth, I mean, it's one thing that you're like, fine, you, you don't pay the rent. You jip you me up on the electric bill but when then i go out of my way to make something i think you're going to enjoy because you tell me you like certain things i'd make the food and bring it over to you so you have something to eat and find that you didn't even open the containers and just threw them over the back fence into the woods that's that's a that's a gut punch that is a gut punch So that's that's my thing about having helping people with charity. Curtis, did I lose you?
3: No, I'm still here. I Like I mentioned in I the he, chat room,
0: fell asleep.
3: Americans are the most <laughs> charitable asleep. people on the planet. You know, we we will give to people, We especially the Republican Party. We're about people, you know, being given a, a hand up, you know, not a handout. And I think All
0: right, it looks
1: like, uh appreciate...
3: we
0: I right,
1: it looks like we got our guy calling in. Look.
3: Okay. But anyway, I feel that um if left alone enough Americans will be chari- charitable enough to um meet anyone's needs here in America if if only they're given a chance to you know, offer their assistance financially, you know, freely, and not be forced or compelled to. I mean, we got services like Salvation Army, you know, they do things. Not by profit, but because people send money in. You know, we have things like um, GoFundMe, where people, you know, just give freely to help for any cause. We have um, hospitals um, for children and and other um, people with certain um, ailments that they sustain themselves by donation. So, like I said we are a free and willing and caring uh, country. And personally, I get tired of being uh, preached to by the Democrats as though we're the worst people and, and most stingy people on the planet just because we're a wealthy country, you know. I mean, they've gone so far as to make the word profit seem like, you know, it's a bad word. No one can make a profit these days, especially in the medical um, business. Um, I mean, after all, doctors—they're no different than than lawyers or or these high-paid athletes. You know, they go to school, um, they do their time and um, in, internships and things, and and they pay most of them. I'm sure pay back their loans. You know, it may take them 10, 12 years, but the thing is, they have to make a living too. And I don't know anyone. Who wants to um, get into a profession where the government dictates how much they can make and um, that seems to be where the Democrats are headed you know and I don't think it's going to work for them. Um, hopefully 2020 comes we can get some more conservatives in the House, the representatives and increase our numbers in the Senate and help this president get this country back on track as well as drain the swamp. Because if we don't, you know, if we don't win in 2020, hey, I think it's it's over for us as a republic. It will be democracy, pretty much. Um, it never fails to muse muse me how a Democrat will never call this country a republic. It's always democracy, as we know. Democracies, pure democracies, are nothing but mob rule. And we have a representative republic, which they seem not to want to be associated with. But um who knows, you know, I believe the Democrats will only be around but so long because they're dependent now not only just on the black community, which their support is dwindling, but more so on these illegals that are being brought in here by the thousands because Like I said, they're losing the black vote. They're killing off their future voters through um, abortion. So they have to replenish their ranks by bringing these illegals in. And if we can stop that, I think we can uh, really, really um, put the final nails in the the coffin of socialism and progressivism in this country. Uh, I'm not sure what happened to Annie, but... I guess our next guest will be on sometime soon. But withstanding that, I watched the rally last night, or parts of it. And it's interesting that three years into his, his presidency, this guy can still fill up a stadium. I mean, from what I've heard about Hillary's um, campaign, they were struggling just to get uh, a 1,000 people to come out and most of them had to be paid and bust in. but with Trump there's electricity about this man and and what he stands for I was fortunate enough to um, be at one of his rallies in Panama City a couple of months ago and to be on stage with him and I'm tell you for his age this guy has energy I mean I was I was tired (laughs) And he talked on for almost like two hours, nearly two hours. And never once did he bore the crowd. I didn't see anybody yawning or or falling asleep. And these are people who who were there on site for hours, some as early as 6 in the morning, to hear him speak at 8 at night. So, you know, when they gave him no chance of winning, back in 2016, I was of a a different opinion, and that's because I went to a couple of his rallies then when he was running for president. And I could see the, the number of people he was drawing to his events. And I said, no in the world can Hillary beat this man with all these people who are supporting him. And it's a good thing because we needed him. He's come at the right time in America's history, and I believe he's the right man to clean up the swamp. Sure, he's a little rough around the edges when it comes to um <laughs> how he speaks to people, but he's he's calling them out not only that he's showing Republicans if they're willing to learn how to um to counter these people, you know, especially in the swamp. Um, we have people who are Republicans in name only or never Trumpers who don't support this guy. And those are not the ones I'm talking about. I'm talking about Republicans who who were there and in Congress for all these years and just didn't know how to fight back. They were too willing to submit to the other side. Compromise to them was coming to um the side of the um liberals and what, what they wanted to um to do. But with Trump as a leader and as president of the United States, they have a they have a, a, a tutor um who's willing to show them how to fight back. And I think that's why he has the support from the people that he has because we we've been looking for a fighter For decades I mean we we have one in Reagan But I don't think they were As wicked and and mean And as prominent Back then And I'm talking about the socialist wing Of that party and the progressive wing They were there But they weren't as vocal And and outright um, In your face with it As they are now today So I would say that you know as Biden said, you know, we can't have Trump around for another eight years. You know, not legally, not constitutionally, but I sure would love to see it. I really would, because um, I think he would take this country um, way back to its original concept as a republic, and what the founders founding fathers intended for this country to be. Uh, right now, we've become Pretty much, almost a third world country in the sense, you know, uh, what the um, Democrats want us to be, and that, that's that's not what we were intended to be. We didn't become the world superpower in less than two hundred years because, you know, we we felt sorry about our role in, in, in climate change. I mean, first it was global warming that didn't work for them, so as always. The Democrats are good at changing the lexicon um, to suit, you know, what what will drive their agenda. And um, global warming is what they, they come up with. It didn't work, so now it's climate change. I mean, who can deny this climate change? So basically it comes down to who's responsible for climate change. Is it something that's just... Um, by nature, or is it man who's causing climate change? And, of course, most on our side feel that climate change is, is, is something that's a natural occurrence. You know, there's ice ages, and then there are ages where, you know, the planet gets hot. Um, I mean, I think it was 1980. 1980, Mount St. Helens um, erupted. And I'm, I'm sure it put thousands of t- tons of ashes into the atmosphere. Um, I think there were dire warnings at the time that the forest would be destroyed for, for centuries. But you know what? The air recovered. You know, we all didn't die from ash pollution. The trees, they grew back, I think, in greater numbers around Mount St. Helens. And um, so all the doom and gloom was never realized. And that, that's another thing with the Democrat Party. They are always pushing doom and gloom to advance their agenda. I mean, think about it. This planet has withstood things like earthquakes and And super volcanoes, I mean, a super volcano, I mean, it has the potential to destroy not just our country, but the whole planet. Yet there's been several in the past, and we're still here on Earth. So I just don't buy into this thing about, you know, man destroying the planet. Sure, we let every nuclear bomb go off in this world we can destroy mankind but I think the planet will survive eventually but um I guess our guests may not show up but that's alright we got me and Annie and we got those in the um, chat room who are chatting away talking about Sheriff Joe and some other good people um On the debate, um, Biden has shown his age and how out of touch he is with the uh, more progressive and more socialist wing of the party. I really don't think Biden has a chance to be the nominee. Uh, Kamala Harris, I think she slipped a little. Um, She was called out on her prosecution of um blacks um who smoke marijuana and she fumbled um in her response. Um there were others who had crazy ideas that the more they speak about them the more you have to nod your head in amazement that, you know, they even said these things, let alone that there are people out there who believe and follow this nonsense. And we'll vote for these people. But I would have to say, throughout the history of America, um, we've we had the Revolutionary War. We've had the um, War 1812. We've had um, the Civil War. Um, all here in the United States, where we could have um, ended as a republic but I really believe God stepped in during those um, wars and those trying times to save this republic. And I think he did the same thing in 2016 um, when Trump came along and uh, won the presidency. Um, this man, he's not a saint. And I used to get asked whenever I, I spoke to, to groups all across um uh, Eastern coast uh, about his conservatism or lack of it, because most people are saying, well, he's not a conservative. You know, why would we vote for him? Or they would question those uh, on the religious right. You know, how could you vote for a guy like this? But I would tell them, excuse me, Trump may not be a conservative at this point in time, but he is a patriot. And right now, a patriot is the next best thing to being a conservative, and it's exactly what we need. I mean, if you're going to drain the swamp, you can't be a nice guy like Mitt Romney. And you can't be a crude person, and vindictive person like a John McCain. You have to be a fighter, and you have to be someone who knows the ropes and knows how to deal with people. Of that ilk and I think Donald Trump was that person I mean he was not going to a a Sunday school social he's going in there to drain a swamp and we're talking the likes of Comey and his group Um, (laughs) those um, underlings that um, we sometimes refer to as shadow government uh, and some other things hopefully um, the Democrats will get down to that one person that we all can focus on. I think it would be more interesting a uh, campaign if they would just narrow down the, the people who they want to uh, run against Trump. I mean, actually, right now, I, I see no one in that group who could take on Trump. And um, this call for Michelle Obama to come to the rescue of that party... I don't see that happening either. Um, the way they attacked it, Obama's uh, administration at the, the you know, the last debate shows that there is a kink in the um Obama aura. You know, he's not as revered as we may have thought amongst those who used to support him. And I think Michelle Pretty much isn't really interested in politics. Um, it's too, too much scrutiny, even for those those uh, those guys. Um, when you think about it, Hillary, Bubba, Obama, and Michelle were all attorneys who who lost their uh, their um, license to practice law. And that's very telling, you know, about their character. One thing Americans like, or we used to like, were people in power and position of leadership who had integrity. We don't seem to have that anymore. We don't have people who are virtuous. And that's some of the failing of our leadership in Washington. There used to be a time people went to to um Washington to um to legislate and to um to do what was best for this country at least that's what the founding fathers intended you know they would go to Washington and then return home but now it's become a career quite a career for the likes of um the late Ted Kennedy, who served, I don't know, maybe close to 40-something years. I don't think it was ever meant to be that way. You know, um, some people want um, term limits. Um, You know, I'm not sure if that's the route to go, but I really don't think people should be in there forever either. Um, Looks like we may have a... Guests online, so I'm going to see if that's our guest. If that is our guest, please press one, and I'll bring you on. As for Annie, I'm not sure what happened. She dropped out. I'm sure she's trying to get back in. Um, Well, whoever that was, they disappeared. But going back to, to my subject here, the Founding Fathers intended for this country to to be a unique form of governance. Um, actually, we were the first true republic the world has ever seen. Before the United States of America, everyone was either ruled
1: Curtis, by... Curtis, can you hear
3: me now? Oh, yeah. By All monarch right, I, or dictator I, or king.
1: I have no idea. I, I got knocked out again. Thank you, Blog Talk Radio and Skype, for knocking me out.
3: Uh, oh, we I lost our guest. She again. got lost in the twilight zone. <laughs> no.
1: Uh I was talking to Tony price and for about 15, 20 minutes and no one was hearing him. They heard Mike end of the conversation and not his. And it's what a shame because he does such good work with the GoldStarRide.org. Dot uh, org. Check out his website, GoldStarRide.org. Dot org. Uh, he helps a lot of gold star families and they've got uh, it's a shame. I'm going to see if from the recording I have going on on my computer, whether or not that audio, and I'll try to splice it into the show later on. Uh, but, uh, I don't know. We we got knocked out. All right. looks like Tony's trying to call back in again. Let's see. Tony, you back with us.
4: I can hear you. Okay. Can you We hear got me? Tony
1: back. <laughs> we got Tony Price back. And we got my co-host with me this time. <laughs> so
4: <laughs> we'll
1: make this work. It, it, we'll make this work. You know, this is called live Fantastic. radio. You never know what's going to happen. You know, we were talking about the uh, Gold Star Ride that you're going on and the families you, you help and pumping your – website, which is goldstarride.org, and it's a shame that the listeners couldn't hear everything we were talking about, uh, because as we were saying, that we have a lot of men and women, once they are detached from the military, they fall through the cracks, uh, they don't make it, and
5: mm-hmm. their families
1: are left with a huge hole, whether it's financially, emotionally, and they need people like you to reach out and help them get themselves back on their feet and get their lives back well, and
4: that's why I do what I do. That's exactly right. There's, there, You know, not all of them fall through the cracks. A lot of them are just fine without any extra assistance. And you know what? They don't ask us for any help, but then there's a lot that do. And when I think about this, the, the whole concept of, you know, the idea that there is a fallen hero whose child uh, is going without and he gave his life so the rest of us could have our freedoms and our liberties. It just embarrasses me. I mean, this is exactly what, uh, if I can take the conversation in this kind of a direction, this is exactly what our enemies do. I saw a report once that said there was somewhere in the neighborhood of $10 million being spent on suicide bombers' families per year in Palestine. We're up in a, and that's not really the hotbed where of where suicide bombers come from but that's uh the idea that that's how they're recruiting suicide bombers to come to fight the war against the United States and we've got people who volunteer with you know they they just volunteer and say I love my country enough I'm going to go do this and their their pay scales are minimal uh you know I remember when I was in the navy it was everything I could do to make it to the 30th of the month and and um still have any money left over when i after i served for years i'll tell you this i didn't have anything in savings um, mm-hmm. you know and that that was me that was 30 years ago but um uh, it's not uh you're not nobody's going to get rich being enlisted in the military
1: no no i was married to a so, marine and my co-host was in the uh, the navy serving during the gulf war um and <laughs> scraping ends to meet and i had to work full time uh, even though we were, you know, in military housing. And what people don't realize mm-hmm. is that when one of our heroes falls, uh, the military really doesn't care. Well, I shouldn't say that, honestly. But you have a very short time after that loved one has passed. The body comes home. He's, he or she is buried. you got to get off base. You've got to get out of that military housing. And any benefits you got for, you know, housing allowances, it's gone. You know, oh, you're, yeah. you're left. Yeah. You're left standing there. Your life has just been completely uprooted. Yeah. The person you thought would be coming home and spending the rest of your life with you, your spouse, your your father, your mother, they're gone. And then you you've yeah. got nothing. What do you do now? Yeah. You know, he or she was the one that paid the bills. He or she made sure the lawn was mowed. Who does these things now? And this is where someone like you steps in.
4: Right. And as I said before, and nobody got to hear it, so I'll I'll get to say it again. And and please understand (laughs) that I have a wonderful sense of humor and I love to laugh, even though the job that I do is far more sad than it is happy and joyous. There's a lot of sadness in everything that I do because I'm dealing with families who just had a funeral. Um, But uh, listen, if if, uh, an 18-year-old calls me up and says, my dad was just killed over in the Middle East, And he was about to buy me a gold-plated Escalade. We're going to say, well, that's wonderful. We'll help you get some wheels. But no, you're not going to get a gold-plated Escalade from us. We'll get you a Ford Fiesta or something. We'll get you some wheels. But if your dad was going to do that other thing, I'm really sorry about that. Um, But, yeah, we, we have to be very, very careful with how much money we spend and what we do for the families that we help. We do as much as we can. We're not afraid to spend every penny that we have. Everybody who works for our organization goes unpaid. Uh, most of the time we're paying our own expenses to go down the road and do the work that we do. Um, but we're willing to do it. We're, you know, a month ago we got a homeless guy off the street here in Minneapolis, got him his own permanent home. So we're not worried about him anymore. And he came to me the next day. I remember it was actually wasn't the next day. It was like five days after we got him a home. He just came to me and he just looked at me. He says, you don't understand. I slept. For the first time in a year, I slept all night because I didn't wake up in the nightmare that I didn't have a house. I didn't have a home. Um, and and just that kind of stress relief, uh, for him anyway, it just changes his whole existence. Because he's not thinking about where his house is anymore. Now he spends more time working. He can concentrate on the other things that are important. He can start building his life and getting it back together. And we didn't spend a great deal. We didn't buy him out. house or anything like that. And speaking of that, on a similar note, I know I, I hear about more and more organizations that are stepping up and trying to do some different things. And I heard about this other organization that was paying off the mortgage for gold star families. Mm -hmm. And I think this is wonderful. Don't let's, so let me start by that. This is a wonderful, wonderful thing, but how do you choose? You know, my, our thought for our organization: Hey, we got enough money to pay off somebody's mortgage. Should we pay off somebody's mortgage, or should we help fifteen or twenty of them? Fifteen or twenty families. Do we help just one forever, or fifteen or twenty to just get there, to just get up a little bit? Um, one of the comparisons I like to say is: Well, you know what? I heard about one in Utah. A woman had her house paid for when her husband was killed. This is wonderful. That we're stepping up. We're taking care of the Gold Star families. This is wonderful. Her house was paid for. But she had an upper middle income herself when her husband was killed. They had a nice house. They were They're doing okay. She's making some decent money. But her house is now paid for. I think that's great. Let's compare that to what we do. I went rolling down the road in the middle of the country, right in the Midwest, and I stopped to see a gold star family. I met with three gold star families and we had lunch and the three of us were just sitting around talking. And, and um, as a matter of fact, there was a, a local Fox affiliate there recording this for the local news for that town. And um, of course, you know, I, and maybe you don't know, so I'll t- tell you this too. We do not reach out to those families. They reach out to us. You have to reach out to us. We think it's an invasion of privacy for us to reach out to you. So we don't reach out to the families. we, just invite them to reach out to us so this particular woman that I was sitting next to her son took his own life came home with pts and and couldn't survive it so he took his own life and she's sitting right next to me at the table and we're talking there's across the table from me is a gold star brother he just lost his brother and down to a little bit to my right is a gold star son whose father was just killed and he was like in his early 20s and these are the families that we have sitting there and across the table from me is the woman who invited me to come and meet with the gold star mom that I was sitting next to. Okay, so she's a little bit part of the story. Anyway, um, the woman looks at me and she just says, you know, I just don't get it. I don't understand why my son would take his own life. And I don't know what really inspired me to do this, but I looked at her and I looked her right in the eye and I said, he didn't commit suicide. It was a sniper's bullet from 7,000 miles away. And I wish I was smart enough to have been the person who invented that sentence. I'm, I'm not. I was quoting a, a country music singer named Rocky Lynn. But immediately, as soon as I said that, the floodgates opened up, and she couldn't have had tears flowing any faster than she had them flowing at that moment. And everybody saw it, and everybody it was actually made part of the news. A week later, the friend sitting across the table that got me there, the friend sent me an email and said she had already written her own suicide note, and she was going to end her own life until you said that. Oh, my God. So let me ask you, which one is more important, me having lunch with somebody and saying it was a sniper's bullet from 7,000 miles away or an upper-middle-class person in society having their house paid for? That's the way we look at it, and that's a rhetorical question. I don't really want an answer. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> I don't really want to well, so, start
4: that debate um, well, so, Everybody gets the form it has
0: those-
1: been, Well it has been a pleasure And I will give you a little hint Because you know uh, Like a lot of, of, of my other guests I do suspect someone in Fox News Watches or listens to the show uh, Because you're not the first person That said shortly you've been on my
4: show You ended up on Fox <laughs> So <laughs>
0: <laughs> well,
4: it, I've actually, uh, I've been very, very fortunate. The the towns that I go to have Fox affiliates that I've been recorded by Fox affiliates, I think in six different markets.
3: And then well,
4: Memorial Day, I actually made the, the national news was the Fox News channel from Washington. I was on that. Well, and I'm so, I will imagine that I, I'll do it again.
1: Okay. Well, I want to thank you for joining us. We've got our next victim up in the bullpen telling people to check out your website, goldstarride.org. And if anyone wants to make a donation, they can donate as little as $5. And maybe that $5 can help you take another Gold Star family to lunch. Tony, you do such great work with the Gold Star Ride Ride Foundation that people can find at goldstarride.org. Thank you. And incidentally,
4: thank you very much. Bye-bye.
1: Thank you, Tony. Take care. All uh, right, check it out, goldstarride.org. We got our next victim up in the bullpen, and as I said, you know, his publicist had sent me uh, about his new book, and I had been so swamped, I just put it aside until someone was kind enough to send me a text saying, hey, you really got to get this guy on the show. And I said, why does that name ring a bell? And I got a hold of his publicist, so I want to welcome over the one, the irreverent and the best in the business, I think, Kevin Williamson. How is that for an introduction, Kevin? Not too bad, thanks. (laughs) Not too shabby. (laughs) But I I have to welcome you aboard. You've got a new book out that just came out last month called The Smallest Minority, Independent Thinking in a New Age of Mob Politics. And oh my goodness, haven't we been undergoing mob politics now for the last couple of decades? This is not something new, but I think people are starting to wake up to it.
2: Yeah, I think that um, social media has exaggerated some pre-existing trends and made this particular phenomenon a lot worse than it was. There's always a kind of team sports aspect to politics, but the, 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 the psychological structure, I think, Twitter and Facebook is really aggravated this and elevated it to the exclusion of almost everything else. So our whole conversation now is good guys and bad guys, white hats and black hats, us and them, you know, and it's, we good, you bad, we good, you bad, we good, you bad. And you can't really conduct a meaningful and fruitful democratic discourse that way.
1: No, you can't. Uh, But what we're seeing is the mob think. And there was at one time, Uh, When you went to school, you were given all different sides of an argument. You were taught to think on your own and form your own opinions, but that doesn't exist anymore. We're just lemons being led to the edge of the cliff and saying, well, it's going to be good for you. Go ahead and jump off, which is what we're doing. (laughs)
2: Yeah, you know, we all watched that, uh, that nature documentary when we were kids. It turns out lemmings don't actually do that, but people do, which is, which is worse in some ways. So I think that um, we have to understand why it is people go to social media to participate in this sort of performative outrage and hysteria. And at the bottom of it, it's not really about politics. It's about identity and belonging to a group and having an in-group and an out-group in this ancient ritual of hating someone together. you figure out who it is you're supposed to hate, and that hatred gives you a group identity. And I think that's really where this comes from. It's only really incidentally about politics because, you know, our real political discussion is, is the top tax rate going to be 39% or 32%? No one is screaming and sobbing and weeping and getting hysterical over that question. But we are getting uh, hysterical and weeping over our engagement with politics And we're in this very, very strange situation where the country is doing reasonably well. Things are fairly peaceful and prosperous, but we're convinced that one side is just, you know, two tweets away from the Holocaust, and the other side is just getting ready to start building gulags and growing out mustaches like Joseph Stalin. And that's not actually where America is or what's going on in the country, but we've convinced ourselves that we're either in a state of emergency or in a state of near-emergency pretty much at all times.
1: Well, you know, we allow... New York and California, specifically New York City, L.A., San Francisco, to control what the rest of the nation thinks and does. And I, I've said this many, many times on the, the show here. I, the uprise of smart devices and social media has changed the dynamics of our society. You know, man is a social animal. You need some sort of an interaction but rather than having that one-on-one human interaction where we can exchange ideas and likes and dislikes, we're relying on these little tiny devices and how many likes we get on Instagram.
2: Yeah, that's kind of the evil genius of social media that people have this natural anxiety about their status, their popularity, and social media takes that anxiety and puts a number to it. You know it puts a publicly available quantity on that. So you know how many friends you have on Facebook, followers you have on Twitter, how many likes this got, how many retweets this got, and all that sort of stuff. And people really respond in a very, very strong way to this. Social media is filling a role in people's lives that used to be filled by other things. And we, we're in a, a particular weird position where we're wealthier and better off and freer than we have been at any time in the past by almost any measurable metric. But some things in our lives have changed. We move more often than we used to. We um, we change employers more often than we used to. We get married later in life. We have children later in life. We go to church less than we used to. So a lot of the sources of traditional relationship and context and meaning and belonging have either been denied to us by our, our new kinds of lifestyles, or they've been at least diminished in some very important way. So people go looking for new sources of meaning and new things to belong to. And unfortunately, they've settled on this this stupid base version of partisan politics that you get on social media of essentially just shrieking at each other. And these people can't be bothered to read a newspaper and figure out what's actually going on in the world. But uh, they'll spend half of their day screaming at people they don't know and calling them Nazis and and all the rest of it. One of the interesting things that you see in the research on this is that the people who have the strongest opinions – are almost always the people who have the least information <laughs> it's true it's not a joke it's, it's 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 fact There's a lot of research on the subject
1: well you must have heard the first part of the show where I ranted against a uh, economics professor out of Chapman um, University who wrote an op ed piece that appeared in the l a Times uh, correlating high taxes and low gun ownership with low suicide rates in New York, New Jersey, and California. And after I tore his math apart, (laughs) you must have heard (laughs) my part of the conversation, Um, because the whole idea behind his whole op-ed piece was gun control. Look how bad guns cause suicides. Uh, No, maybe because guns are more successful at killing, that suicide rates committed by people that – Use firearms are more successful than someone say doing an overdose. Uh, no, that 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 math doesn't come into the situation. But you know, no guns and high taxes—that's the problem. Right. Yeah, it, you know, it's, it's,
2: Yeah, there is that, and there's um, there's always a tendency to want to overgeneralize from trivial correlations. You know, if you look at the very, very big picture of suicide rates across countries, across income groups, uh, across racial and ethnic groups, across religious groups, it's really, really hard to find a set of correlations that really holds true everywhere. And we run into this in the public policy debate all the time where people on the left will say, well, you know, in Norway they do things this way. Why don't we do that? And I'll say, well, it's maybe worth looking at the way they do things in Norway. It's not that we don't have things to learn from other countries. But Norway is a lot different from Chicago. You know, Oslo is not a lot like Baltimore or Houston or Dallas. And um, this idea that humans are kind of uh, tabula rasa and that we can just imprint policies on top of them and import them and move them from one culture to another and one country from another is, is nuts. You know, I'm I'm a big admirer of Switzerland, which I think is one of the best governed countries in the world. But I don't think their system of government would work very well in Oklahoma. No.
1: No. We, we're, the, the beauty about America is is that we're not one size fits all, and yet they tried to squeeze us into that. And something that you addressed in the book, and I have to apologize, I have to admit that 99% of the authors I get on the show, I've read their book, but because I mm-hmm. got a hold of um, Caleb just <laughs> yesterday – I haven't had a chance. So he's going to have to send me the book. I'm going to have to have you come back on because there's so much <laughs> to talk about. Because just yeah. reading the synopsis on it, you and I are of the same mind on this one. you know. And and, and what I found funny when doing the little bit of research I had on there, um, you did an interview. Oh, good Lord. I'm trying to remember where the heck. Oh, on the morning Joe That yeah. got so twisted by NARAL. And this is something that just a few conversations ago with you uh, crossed my mind about this new group that we have out there that everyone has to now think along the same lines. Uh, also, uh, we no longer have the centering around the church, the family. We have mm-hmm. a loss of a moral direction. So hence, we're finding ourselves being assaulted. Uh, and the social media had picked it up, going, oh, because they're saying this against these people, they've got to be right. So now you're the bad guy uh, being a individual. Yeah, you know, when that, when is a I bad did that thing.
0: Interview.
2: Yeah, I did that interview, and then Nairal started tweeting that I had just said these crazy, outrageous things that I had not only not out of context, just, it was just made up. It was just something about abortion that had never even come up in the conversation, which wasn't what we talked about. And then they eventually had to retract it, but then people started to say, well, you know, but he's one of those, so he probably believes this anyway, and it's okay to lie about him. And if he didn't say it on this instance, maybe he did something else. And um, that is really where the the worst kind of um, mob mentality comes into it, because it does become ultimately a game of us and them, and anything that is in favor of our side is okay. So the thing is, if you convince yourself that the other side is Adolf Hitler and you are the resistance to the Nazis – then basically anything is acceptable, right? Any kind of dishonesty, any kind of deception, any kind of nasty tactic because the other side is so bad. But if you don't believe that, if you believe, well, the people on the other side are actually just citizens and people like me who have different political ideas than I do, how do I engage with them? Then you can't go out and engage in this lying and hysteria and theatrics and dishonesty and and all the rest of it. So people, particularly political partisans and political professionals – cultivate this sense of emergency. They want people to think that things are always on the verge of chaos and despair and anarchy because it makes people more obedient. It makes them more compliant and it keeps them in line, keeps them on the team. And the last thing they want is us having conversations with each other as individuals and citizens, rather than just as representatives and mascots of warring tribal groups, which is really where they want us. And that is um, something that's going to make it really, really very, difficult for democratic institutions to be effective in the long run
1: yeah no, it, 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 the, the absolute group think and the worst part is is that when you called them out where were the actual retractions it used to be when you saw a newspaper article that had incorrect facts in it or completely facts misrepresented you could call out the newspaper the editor would then on the Front page or the inside page, you know, state that these are the corrections, and they do it in small print, but they still would publish it. Mm. But now, when you do call them out, it's like, oh, so what? It's already hit the the internet. It's already had you know a million hits. So there's no point in even trying to correct it because anyone's going to think it's all right anyway. There's no correction.
2: Yeah, you know, I got into a back and forth yesterday with Noah Smith, who's a columnist for Bloomberg, and he just made a mistake about something where he had been, you know, uh, giving me grief for having characterized something he'd written in a certain way, and he said, I never wrote that, and he literally wrote exactly those words, as a lot of people showed him, including me, so he just quietly went and deleted it, you know, never corrected it, never acknowledged the error, um, never actually made a retraction, and, you know, the same thing happened with the Narrow business, where, you know, they had originally tweeted this thing that was a complete fabrication that got, you know, retweeted and rebroadcast 10,000 times or whatever, and then very quietly say, oh, we weren't actually right about that, you know, and then it gets like, you know, seven retweets, <laughs> and so that's that's the way we are, and uh, so the truth is very, uh, the truth has a lot of challenges right now because there is so much noise and so much disinformation that's intentional, and this is something that I, I call anti-discourse, which is a form of communication that is designed actually to prevent the exchange of information, points of views, priorities, and things like that. It's uh, two people trying to talk and a third party standing between them just screaming obscenities. And that's essentially what Twitter does, kind of mostly what Facebook does. Unfortunately, what a lot of talk radio and cable news does as well, and that's where the sort of social media affect is starting to seep out into the real world, where people are beginning to behave that way in their normal lives and not just on social media. And that's going to make things ugly and not just, you know, Thanksgiving conversations.
1: No, that's the hard part Um, because I, on Facebook, got attacked by my my own relative, and uh, I pointed (laughs) out and said, listen, um, I don't go onto your page and attack you. There is a certain etiquette between family members. I said it's one thing when a troll does it, but when it happens to be a family member, that's just crossing the line, and he he backed off on it. Uh, but. That's the whole thing, you know. We're doing it to our own family members. I mean, my co-host Curtis, that's sitting there in the background. I think he fell asleep. Curtis uh, hmm. has said that I'm because so of his political <laughs> views, you've actually had family members disassociate themselves with you.
2: Curtis, were you going to answer
1: okay. that, or uh, you want me to go? <laughs> oh,
2: you, uh, okay. yeah. i've solved, I've solved that problem for myself just by not using social media. So I used to use Facebook once upon a time, and it was not really very helpful. And then you'd get someone you went to second grade with who wants to start a fight with you about the president or global warming or something like that. And for me, I decided it just wasn't really a really very productive use of time. I'd rather write books than tweets, but um, you know, some other people find some value in it, I suppose.
1: Well, the only reason why I use it is that I can post the show out there to people that follow my page. And that's the only yeah. reason why I find it useful. Um, people go, well, I sent you a and message so on Twitter. Uh, it's like, uh, well, so I last I. looked at Twitter a week ago, so let me look now. <laughs>
3: <So>. <laughs> I look yeah, at social social media. not secure. I look at social media as uh, unnecessary evil, to be honest with you. <laughs> I only use it because... Um, that's how you get your, your your works out there. You know, if you're a writer, you know to to promote and, and advertise your books. But I don't necessarily like using social media because of the restrictions and restraints and the control uh, like Facebook or Twitter have over the content. And I'm I'm sure a lot of times um, I'm promoting a book on Twitter or Facebook. I'm not 100% certain that it's really getting out to the audience that I wanted to get out to, because I just don't trust those guys.
1: Well, do you find that, Kevin?
2: I don't trust anybody, of course. um, I think that um, (laughs) Facebook and Twitter certainly have their issues when it comes to conservatives and when it comes to unpopular political opinions, although what's really driving that is that they respond to complaints. And people on the left are just a lot more apt to complain formally about this stuff than people on the right are. And I think that really drives a lot of it. You know, you take people like the executives at Twitter, you know, people like Mark Zuckerberg. I think that they want to do the right thing. I genuinely think that they want to do the right thing. I mean, they want to make money and stuff too. But they are also strangely very easy to bully and very easy to shame. You know, I think if I had twenty billion dollars, I'd be pretty confident about a lot of things and I would tell a lot of people to go jump in a lake when they wanted to criticize me. But these guys really respond to criticism, particularly within their community. And so they're living out in Silicon Valley, which has just a uniformly leftist political monoculture, and that's the world they live in. That's the water they swim in, and they don't really understand anything different. You know, I've gone out there and I've spent time with some of these people and talked to them and I'll tell them just sort of ordinary conservative stuff, you know, things that anyone who reads National Reviewers, read any American conservative literature would uh, be familiar with. And they're like, they're really interested, but they've never heard it before. And they're like, hmm, wow, that's really fascinating. I'm like, guys, this is is elementary school stuff. But that's the world (laughs) they live in, and they don't really understand conservative and this is, this is the thing that we should do a better job on, I think, and I get into this a little bit in the book, is that we do have these insulated subcultures in the United States. And a lot of the people who are in the culture and entertainment business just – they don't interact with conservatives, they don't know conservatives, they don't know what they're about, even you know, really, really smart people. Um, I always point out you – and know, Jonathan Franzen wrote a, a pretty good novel called Freedom in which he tried to write some characters who were activist, conservative Republicans. It just gets it uniformly wrong. Just doesn 't really understand what they 're about and uh, and what their motivations are and how they see the world, and I suspect he just doesn't really know any as uh, as a lot of these people don't
1: well you know there's a lot of people that are conservatives that just when they hear something going on around them, they keep their mouth shut you know they won't wear the Donald Trump hat because they're afraid someone is going mm-hmm. to confront them, and this is the problem we have as the silent majority. And we're so busy being silent and living our everyday lives and not trying to make waves that when it comes to the point where they've finally found the left has encroached so much in our life and to the point where they're teaching our six-year-olds in school transgenderism, somewhere along the way we've got to say, stop. Enough is enough. is going
2: too far. This is a big point I get into in the book that Where this culture of hysteria and conformism really matters isn't for people like me who are in the controversy business. It doesn't matter for people who are journalists and opinion writers and who have talk shows and things. It really matters for ordinary people, people who are manager of a Starbucks in Philadelphia, someone who's a programmer at Google, other sorts of people who are finding out that employment is being used as an instrument of political discipline and who are terrified of having or voicing any unpopular ideas or even things that they're not sure about whether it will be popular or not. And so they learn to be quiet. They learn to knuckle under. They learn to go along with the herd and do what they're told. And that is really where you run into, I think, a real problem with the interference of free speech and free, free thought and free association. You know, for someone like me, I've got unpopular ideas. Fine. I get fired by the Atlantic. I write about it in the wall street journal, life goes on. But a lot of people don't have that option. They don't have that alternative. And especially people who are outside of the media and political business are really in a place where they're facing a lot of pressure that they don't necessarily understand. They don't know what's uh, acceptable and what's not acceptable, and so they learn to be quiet, and that's the last thing you really want.
1: And that's that's where the problem lies because, as I said, you now have where you've got NARAL and a bunch of other organizations in California – actively teaching kids as young as 3 to 6 about transgenderism uh, there's now uh, California is looking to push with a teaching pre-pubescent children that it's okay to have group sex you know when we first came out with you know sex ed in the school system back in the 70s late 60s, 70s, what was it teach about sexually transmitted diseases uh, to help teach kids to know that by the time they're old enough uh, what to do uh, to talk to their parents. Mostly it was the parents were supposed to teach the kids. We're just going to teach them the actual biology of diseases such as influenza was one of the diseases they taught. You know, it morphed from being something that seemed harmless into being some, something such such a social harm at this point.
2: Yeah, I think that um, that's something you see a lot coming from from the left, where they take something that is um, understandable in some way, and then they amplify it and push it uh, past the point where it is understandable. So, you know, you take things that may have – oh, you take an issue like gay rights. I think most people of goodwill are in favor of more or less leaving gay people alone, letting them arrange their their lives the way they want to. But then that becomes a year or two later – hey, we've got this new convention about how to use pronouns, and if you don't follow this, you're going to lose your job over it. And that is a whole different kind of culture and a whole different kind of thing.
1: Yeah, that's the law in New York. I mean, if a New York employee misidentifies someone by their gender, it's first a $200 fine or possibly up to two years in jail. A yeah. Nice society that we've now got ourselves into. You have now the actor Mario Lopez, who in an interview with Candace uh, Owens, said, hey listen, you know, you're teaching these kids about the L B G T community a little too early. Let me decide when my child's ready and all of a sudden he gets attacked by the liberal left and he's got to do a flip flop. We allow them to cave us under and that's another problem we have to address. Where do we stand our ground?
2: Yeah, ultimately this is really going to be something that is up to institutions to solve um because individuals can't really do it on their own. Um, I'll say a word of praise for the New York Times on this front where there have been these Twitter mob episodes where people want to get Brett Stevens fired or Barry Weiss or Sarah Jong, and the Times has more or less stood tall on these things and said we hire who we hire, and we hire them for the reasons we hire them, and if you don't like it, well, we're the New York Times, and we've got a lot of readers, and you can go somewhere else, and we don't make our hiring decisions based by what Caitlin32907 on Twitter has to say about something. And, you know, good for them on that, but a lot of other institutions don't do that, and certainly college campuses are the worst, and they're the ones that should be most standing tall for this sort of thing. Uh, But they've really abandoned their their mission.
1: Well, we only have you left for a few few more minutes. I wish I had more time with you because I had a whole list of stuff I wanted to uh, touch on you with, and uh, you did an interesting article on poverty and we yeah. we heard the huge thing with Elijah Cummings and Baltimore, and uh when I looked at the figures about the amount of money under Elijah Cummings as their congressman uh for that district, the amount of money that went into Baltimore from the federal government, I sat down and mm. did the math, and it came up to something like over two and a half million dollars a month and got plowed into Baltimore, and it did nothing mm. instead. It's got the second highest homicide rate in the nation. It's it's a sixty something other percent poverty rate. Well, yeah. almost triple the national a- average, and yet because we mentioned Baltimore as the example of poverty in the United States, it's a bad thing.
2: Yeah, uh, Baltimore is a is a troubled city, and I think that we tend to. Oversimplify the situation in places like that. Both the locals do, and the people looking at it from the outside. I don't know as much about Baltimore, but I lived for a long time in Philadelphia, and I was a journalist there, covering the city for for several years. And you know, in Philadelphia, you could spend two weeks in Philadelphia and not know that this city had any troubles at all, because most of the city is perfectly nice. You know, you go from Rittenhouse Square to Walnut Street to galleries and the restaurants and the parks and the museums, and it's a it's a perfectly lovely city. And you might see some homeless. You might see some panhandling, that sort of thing. But I mean, well, like any other American city, uh, you know, in Philly, um, most of the violent crime, most of the real, um, the real pathological behavior happens in a very small number of neighborhoods that are very isolated in a lot of ways. People don't go in. People don't come out. Uh the same thing is true largely in Chicago, where almost all the violent crime happens in a very, very small number of areas and this is this is true in, in a lot of places I, St. Louis has a similar pattern of behavior and I think that we don't think very carefully about these issues. we don't um, draw the right connections between things and we and again, we retreat into tribalism so when conservatives come and say, You know what the schools are really terrible in Baltimore and Philadelphia and Chicago and some other places. Maybe there's room for some reform there. The big Democrats step back and say, no, no no, we can't have that we can't have it because these are our people. And then people on the left say, we've got some problems with the way the police uh, conduct things here and we think there are some abuses and some policies that probably change. And conservatives won't even listen to that even though they sometimes have a point. And I think that's really where we're losing the ability to conduct real democratic discourse because of this mob mentality team sports version of politics.
1: Uh, that is a huge amen, especially since I was a cop in New York, so I know from whence you, you speak, and my co-host yeah. is from the Philadelphia area. I mean, there are areas that uh, <laughs> even we were afraid to walk into, and I can tell a story that I rode with uh, one cop one midnight, and he said, well, let's go make a couple of easy drug busts. He turns around, puts his hat, uniform hat on backwards. He's in full uniform, gun belt and all, stands in line with a bunch of people waiting to buy their drugs, gets up to the front where the dealer was, arrest him. And everyone goes, "Well, how did you do that? He was in line in full uniform, and I just waited there for him and make the rest, walk out, boom. Yeah, There are areas in cities that do need help, but throwing money at it is not the answer. Kevin, it has been marvelous. People can find you up on National Review. Uh it's mm-hmm. The magazine of William F. Buckley. Uh, I'm so jealous. Uh, You've got a new book out. It's not your first. People can find your books up on Amazon as well as Reginary Press. The newest one is The Smallest Minority Independent Thinking in a New Age of Mob. Mob, If I can talk straight, mob politics. And I'm (laughs) going to get a hold of Caleb and get you back on. It is too much fun talking with you.
2: Thanks so much. Talk to you again.
1: And God bless for the heart of you, sir. All right, check they out care. Kevin Williamson up on National Review and his book. There's a link on the show page. Just click on it and get his book. want to welcome your friends, Curtis, so I will let you do the honor since they are your mm-hmm. friends. And I will unmute them, which you forgot to do. So go ahead, Curtis.
3: Oh, I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'd like to introduce Terry one, Kyan, and Bobby Michael. Good Hello. afternoon. Welcome
6: to the goodness. show. Hello. How are you doing?
3: Uh, just oh, fine.
6: It's
1: a, it is a pleasure to have you. Um, you are an angel family, and we were talking earlier with Tony Christ that works with the Gold Star families out there. Um, but you've taken um, a tragedy, and you've turned it into a positive. And I'm so very sorry for your loss. Reading the story, it just had me crying. Um uh, you lost your youngest son to an illegal immigrant um, and people don't understand the damage that is done to our society when we allow a criminal element to remain within it, whether they're here legally or illegally. You know, breaking the law is breaking the law and there has to be a consequence for it.
5: Exactly right. And um, the price that, that, that it costs that illegal and they want to call it immigration, but it's it's actual illegal invaders. Um, it does come at a cost. And for our angel parents such as Bobby and I, it with any parent it, it cost is too high. We we didn't choose unlike those invading our borders now, we did not choose to try to take our child. We didn't lose him by trying to take our child illegally into another nation. Our child was an American citizen, like my husband is a 20-year retired um, Navy veteran, and um, we lost our child to someone that should have never been here. It, it's a preventable, 100% preventable crime. He, The illegal that uh, ran into our son that caused the crash um, had been twice, previously deported and came back into our community and we are not along the we don't live in Texas we don't live in California we're not along a border uh, city we're in Jacksonville which is as far north as you can be without being in Georgia and that shows you just the degree of the danger that we face and our son Brendan uh, just so for those who are listening uh, was our middle child, uh, our youngest son. We have an older son, and we have a young, younger daughter. And much loved, like most, you know, all parents, we love our children and would lay our lives down in a moment, um, without hesitation, for them. And he was full of life. He he was engaged to be married. He was a dreamer. He had dreams of being a veterinarian. Um, and he was on his lunch break. And was going to cash his check, was driving to go and cash his check, and it, uh, that twice supported illegal ran directly into him, causing his car to flip and um, killing him. And, and then he got out of his car, the illegal did, and he watched our son take his last breath. And he didn't do anything to help him, he didn't do anything to get him help. And that forced us uh, to now hear as a, as a parent the The worst news you you just it's the worst parent every parent's worst nightmare to hear that your child is gone and it's just incomprehensible when you just saw them he just left for work. I was just telling him he needed to eat his oatmeal that i'd gotten up in fits for him and um he told me' mom, I'll just get something out out of the vending machine at work and and then you get news like that and it, it immediately you just it's a shock you just cannot even phantom it. It's nothing you're prepared for. Nobody can prepare you for anything like that. We're having to deal with that, and, and our children that are in shock, and they're grieving, and, of course, he was only 21. Our children are only two years apart, so they were young, too young to ever have to endure something like that, as, rest, as well as the rest of our family, my mom, his grandmother, his aunts and uncles. And cousins, many, many cousins To have to hear that news And it's so sudden And, and of course his fiance Who he was building his future with And they, we were supposed to be Planning his wedding And we end up planning a funeral And um, Hi, to make it Yeah
3: Yeah, I was just going to say Didn't this guy deny that he was even driving?
5: He did he denied that he was driving. He denied that he was in the car. And because he got out of the car after he hit our son, killing him, um, this, and he denied it, the state had to prove, it forced the state of Florida to have to prove that he was behind the wheel, which now here's another tragedy we have to endure. And no no parent should have to go through that. Nobody should have to go through that. And so we had to go through a lengthy trial because this state had to prove that he was behind the will and he had never had a, a license, a US issued license, um, ever. And uh during the trial he looked at us every week from day from week to week and still was denying that he was behind the wheel. And and um finally, uh somewhere in the trial um a police officer that had been on the scene Who was out of the nation He didn't know that we were looking for anyone um, He finally came forward Now this was after Bobby and I went back With our local news station To the scene where the crash happened Which was horrific It was it was probably the second or third hardest thing We ever had to do um, And begged for witnesses to come forward That may have seen it Because it was at a busy intersection Here in Jacksonville and finally, a policeman came forward and um, and pointed him out and told and said he was behind the wheel, and so it was never the trial was never about who was at fault because he was immediately cited on the scene as being at fault because of the witnesses, but nobody could really come forward or was willing I don't know what the story was or was willing to come forward and say he was behind the the, the wheel, um, so ah. Uh, that was that was just the another tragedy of it. And there's many layers to this. Um, such as there our son, one of his coworkers, which was a friend of his that he went to high school with, was in the car with him. And he was so um emotionally first he was he was harmed as well. He wasn't fatally harmed, you know, he had a broken collarbone and Some other injuries, but emotionally, he was so shaken up. He he could not even remember the crash, the impact of it. So he couldn't be used as a witness. So he's another victim of this, an unspoken victim. He went through years of counseling. It it will be 12 years uh, in, in August. And I believe he just finished counseling, maybe last year. So... There, when people say legal immigration is no big deal or we should just look the other way, no, it comes at a cost. And for us, you know, and, and other angel parents and families, the, the cost is way too high. And we don't want anybody else to go through this.
1: No, no one should sure have gone through it in the first place. You know, um, I haven't lost a family member, but I did lose a friend to someone who also was deported twice. By an ICE agent I knew personally. Personally, he took that guy over the border twice, came back to kill a friend of mine, a New York City police officer, a fellow officer, in the line of duty. Um, it was a huge, famous case in New York City back in 1989. Bob Machadi, Officer Machadi, was killed by an illegal alien. It is a cost, but we have states and cities and that turn a blind eye uh, to the illegals within the midst. You know, New York City was a perfect example as a sanctuary city. We were not allowed, when we knew and took someone into custody, we knew to be here illegally, an illegal alien. We were not allowed to notify ICE. And uh, this is this is something that we need to get the nation to wake up to. You break the law to come here, so you've already committed a crime. And, and then you'll compound it over and over again by allowing them to return after they've been deported. But, no, we're the bad people. You're the bad people there. You're you're the ones that are doing the wrong because these people just want to come here and make themselves a new life. They're the victims. You're not. How do you respond to that?
0: Yeah,
6: it's definitely a, a huge problem, especially when, for an example, like in the state of Florida, Um, We have laws against harboring illegals. We have laws against um, illegals, period, because once you come across that border, you're breaking the law, and we are a nation of laws. So that's one of the things that has to be addressed as well, the laws that's already on the books um we have to enforce those laws cuz at the time our son was killed those laws were not being enforced the laws that were already on the books
5: and and the way that we 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 had people to actually say things like that when we spoke out in our um at our house committee uh hearings and at the at the Senate committee hearings uh when the sanctuary City's uh, band was was on the was on the books, and when it was being heard, um, we spoke out, and it was very difficult. To, it's difficult because we have to relive this over and over for every angel parent or family member. And uh, we did have people to say exactly what you just said that you know they just want to come here. They, some of the the demo, on the Democrats, the ones on the far left. That's exactly what they were saying, that they, all oh, they just want to come here and make a better life, and we we have a responsibility to the most vulnerable of our society, and we were floored by those comments, because we were like, wait a minute, your responsibility is to those who put you in office, is to the American citizens. You took an oath to protect and defend us against foreign and domestic enemies, and uh, first of all, you know, the, one of the things we had to tell them is we don't have a problem with immigration when it's legal. But when it's illegal, every one of us should have a problem with that because it does cost. And you all are here saying, as well as all the people, they had the room full of witnesses coming forward saying these are all great people. These are all – and we're not saying everybody's a criminal but we are saying if you cross our borders and you invade our borders, if I break into someone's home, I'm a criminal. I've now co- committed, committed an a a, uh, illegal act. So we stand against those things, and we do ask their back, and we tell them that is absolutely not correct. It costs, and it comes at a price, and it costs even to house and clothe and feed people who are not citizens here. When we have American citizens who are going to bed hungry who don't have a place to stay.
1: Well, I've got a little bit of a humorous story uh, because I do have an odd sense of humor, as Curtis will tell you. Uh, Just last month, we had a local group protesting Trump's uh, policies on illegal immigration, and they were doing this huge walk uh, from a parking lot to go towards downtown. And so uh, a bunch of us got together, and I'm a Tea Party leader, as Curtis will tell you. We grabbed our MAGA hats. Uh, My husband was waving the American flag, and we stood on the outskirts of their protest, and as they're getting out of their cars and they're locking the cars and setting the alarm on the cars while carrying these banners uh, saying, open the borders and things like that, and of course I'm shouting over, oh, it's okay to lock your car against an invasion, but we can't lock our borders against an invasion. <laughs> it didn't go over exactly. very well, as you can imagine. But you think about their logic. Here they are, they're locking their car so that it's not going to get broken into, but it's okay to allow them to, as you said, invade our border, steal our services, and steal the lives of our children. That's Okay. But you will lock your car, uh, Kaya. Am I thinking at this the wrong way, or am I looking at it the correct way?
5: That is the left way, and I, you know, I always say the left can't get it right. That is the thing that I have. <laughs> it, <laughs> because that is like
0: illogical.
5: You know, it's illogical the way that they that that they don't have any basis for their for their uh, thinking. And and their arguments really are baseless. And that's you know, and this is why you uh I, I know when we met you, CS that you hadn't heard of us. People don't hear of angel parents. Um you hear now more because we have of our great president, because the president the president has decided to put uh bring light to how serious this is and he has a heart for angel families and angel parents and but prior to him you never heard of us because they don't want anybody to hear about us. They don't want people to realize that this is a real emergency. When he first declared it was an emergency and they totally de- denied it was an emergency. And you know, we we went to Nancy Pelosi's office with it was a group of us angel families with pictures of our children. And we told her, you tell us this is fabricated. You tell us this is made up. You tell us this is a manufactured crisis. You look us in the eyes as, as parents. We, as mothers, we carried our babies just like you did. You know, as fathers, you know, they, they are here. They These are their children. These are their babies as well. You look us in the eyes and tell us that our children are manufactured. And, of course, she she went behind her wall, um, never came out. But she did call Capitol Police on us. Um, and they were all lined up in the, there's you know, at least 50 of them lined up along the wall. And one of the parents who was with us was a parent who was from her district whose child was killed by by a uh, previous deported illegal. Well,
3: what are your thoughts on the left um, calling illegals um, undocumented? um immigrants what what's the purpose oh, behind that to because
5: they want to decriminalize uh the whole illegal game that they're playing the entire illegal process that they're benefiting from and that they're making money from they want to decriminalize the idea that they are or the fact that they are invading our borders by not making it illegal, so if we can call them illegal immigrants, it sounds a little better than illegal aliens. They don't want to call them illegal, period. They want to change our laws. And um, we have laws that say that this illegal alien, by definition, they're a foreign national who's living without official authorization in a country in which they are not a citizen. For instance, if I go over to Great Britain, I'm illegally there unless I have permission to be there. And so – we understand that that's exactly why they want to change, try and change it, because that's what the left does. This is what liberals do, is if, if it doesn't fit into what benefits them, as you all know, and I know you agree, and the, the people listening would agree, then they want to change the narrative. They, they want to change the definition, and we refuse to bite down. It, it costs us everything. We refuse to go away, and we won't be shut up.
0: And so i I, I like to in. add
3: to that I like to add to that real quick um i, I think they also use that term because there's a lot of um people on the left who who really don't follow uh, what's going on, and I think they want these folks to think it's just a matter of um some paperwork you know well you know they're just if they're undocumented you know immigrants, why don't we just don't get the paperwork done and let them become citizens, you know. Because these people, exactly. they—they—they're not. They—I don't want to say they're not smart, but they're just not informed, and I think that's one reason why they do it.
5: And I would agree with that. You know, when we spoke in the committees, um, particularly the uh, Senate committee was was very aggressive about this. I mean, they were very hostile. The the left, the Democrat. Um, and when we spoke in the committees. That's one of the things that came up is that they they said that we should be thankful because we this nation was built on on uh immigrant immigrants, but what has happened and and my answer to them with that was the immigrants that from yesterday fifty years ago our laws were totally different than what they are now because the population has greatly increased, and the reality is we have uh people in, invading our borders, we have over 53 different nations that are taking advantage of the loopholes in our immigration policies and our immigration laws,
3: and they all know
5: it. We we were at the border down in Laredo, and uh, we were also in El Paso, Texas, and, you know, the first thing the illegals are saying when they cross over that border First of all, they all have a child with them because the loopholes in our laws say if you have a child with you, the chances of you being sent back are, are greatly almost impossible. You're going to be taken in because of the catch and release uh, policy. But the first thing – the and the Border Patrol will tell you this. The first thing they ask is where's my free stuff? <laughs> um,
1: no, well, I'm laughing. It's not funny, though. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. They want,
5: they want
1: – Yeah. Because they have what
5: is happening in a lot of like Guatemala, Mexico, a lot of these countries is someone paying for uh, media through the radio to go out and they have flyers everywhere, go to America, go to America, go to America, you'll get a free living.
3: And they've been coached.
5: And they've been coached on what to say and what to do. They're given a diagram of uh, the least, resistant parts of the border to follow and how to get through. A lot of them are escorted. The cartels are are charging them to escort them through the border, you know, through the desert, which is awful terrain. We were out in in El Paso, and it's well over 100 degrees. I mean, and then if, if the wind starts blowing, there's sand everywhere. And so it's very dangerous. It's a very dangerous trek for these children which are the ones that really concern us. So they are being coached on what to say. They are being given a a diagram. Some are even um, being uh, led by
3: uh, drones.
5: They have drones. So, you you know, technology. They're using technology to help invaders invade our nation and bombard our borders uh, to escort them through to the border. So... And then once they cross the border, they're charged to get through the through uh, the desert to the border. Then the cartel turns around and charges them to cross over across the border. So the cartels make it, and they're charging. From what we were told, they're charging anywhere from five hundred to three thousand dollars per person. So now this is big business. We're 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 finding out over a hundred and forty thousand have been crossing, invading our borders. For the last several months. So imagine that. You know, if you do the multiplication, the cartels are making more money than the coyotes uh, by uh, harboring, you know, by bringing the illegals across than they are by pushing drugs. So this is, we saw with our own eyes what was going on. We were there.
1: Yeah, that's it's a shameful thing, and you know it, it it's not going to stop anytime soon. And someone had asked in the chat room why you know Trump isn't doing anything. Trump has made multiple attempts to close all these loopholes either through executive order or trying to get legislation pushed. But every time he uses an executive order, either the Ninth Circuit or the Sixth Circuit, there is a suit filed against him. And this is why he's trying to turn the courts over, appoint as many judges right. to the Ninth and Sixth to change the the uh, tenure of the, uh, the of these courts. So he's on a losing battle at this point. Now the Ninth Circuit is starting to shift. He's getting more yeah. and more conservative judges on there, and hopefully by the time he ends his second term, he will completely turn both of those courts, and that will be something that we see for the next thirty, forty, fifty years. So there is a possibility we can turn the tides. He's been working with uh, Mexico and Guatemala, and something I said years ago, withhold the funding to these countries until they come in line with our immigration policy, our legal immigration policy. And Guatemala, you just saw them. They said, we will capitulate. Mexico is now has, what is it, uh, 250,000 uh, police troops you know, on the border now? Is that um, I got the right number? Or was it twenty five thousand? I know they moved a tremendous number of their police up to the border to start to stem the tide. It's an uphill battle. And unfortunately, you've paid the ultimate price and your family's not going to be the last. We know this. And it, it just doesn't matter to some people. It should because it's not their child. It doesn't it doesn't matter to them because it's not
6: their child. And not only that, the American people need to wake up. A lot of people are being misinformed, and a lot of people really doesn't know what's happening. And we saw it firsthand in McAllen Airport. What's happening, these illegal aliens are being placed on planes. They have priority boarding. Some of them are sitting in first-class seating. We were waiting in line, waiting to board the plane, along with elderly people and some people with young kids. And just to watch the illegal aliens aboard these airlines before us, I mean, that was a slap in the face as a veteran. Some of them sat in first-class seating, and they're being dispersed throughout the United States. And once they get to the other end, I mean, they just mingle in just like normal American citizens because you don't know who they are at that point.
5: Yeah, they're not being vetted. We do know that. They – they're not being vetted because it's just too many of them. I mean, our border patrol and our system is overrun. And um, we saw, even at the airport, as Bobby was saying, we saw as angel parents, it's a, it's, a, it's a hit. I mean, that it really hits you because we're standing there. We're having to stand to the side to allow illegal aliens to crawl, to get on an airplane, get on these planes ahead of us. Unbelievable, and they were. Uh, and I don't think any of them were well, they were coughing. Um, you could tell that they were not feeling well, uh, and they were being assisted around uh, TSA. They didn't have to go through and take their shoes off like we did and like you do, they didn't have to go in and, and be screened and, and all of it. They know they had, they had a total separate. Process. They went through a different. They just walked right on in, and they were escorted by and an, an, and in one case they were we knew that they were escorted by an American lawyer, and they stay with them until they get on the plane, and we know that yes. they're illegal because they have these Manila envelopes that Bobby recognized from his time in the military. He reco- and that drew his attention, and then we saw them all with these Manila envelopes, and they had in them we were able to. Read what they had on the manila, manila envelopes, which was, "Please help me, I can't speak English."
1: Oh jeez, oh man. And, and they yeah. had
5: lunches. They had
6: cell phones.
5: Cell phones. They had American money because they were buying food. They had uh, brand new clothes, shoes. This is what we saw with our own eyes, and we weren't the only ones. There are other angel parents that saw that as well that were at the border. And that were on planes as well, and we're grateful because, in our case, in this situation, the only saving grace was that coming into Florida because of the sanctuary bill that was being argued. I think we didn't see—I don't think we saw any coming into Florida. No. But mm. um, they are going somewhere, and they're not—they're not, they're not going to stay where they are, and that's what people need to understand. They're not going to stay in whatever state they're being flown in. Eventually, they're going to. Make their way out and make their way around the U.S.
6: No,
1: and it's going to be in all 50 states. And I have a friend of mine, the ICE agent that uh, deported this illegal that killed my friend. Um, He said in the United States, you don't have just port towns. Every single state in the United States is is a legal point of entry. It's a port. Every single 50 state is a border state and you just proved the point you know you're you're flying out of texas to go to florida but these people are flying from texas going to ohio wyoming alaska Wherever they're flying them, every single state is now a border state. And, you know, I you have gone through so much. And, you know, my heart just breaks for you. And I, I sometimes don't even know what to say because what do you say? There is nothing that we can say except to help you fight your cause, which you put together the Brandon Randolph Michael Foundation. And God bless you for that hard work you do um, on that foundation, you know, to get the message out. Now, my question to you is I know that they have Had Build the Wall Symposium in Texas last week, and were you there for that?
5: We weren't there for that. I believe they had, instead of having um, all of the Angel families come in, they had two, we have two Angel families who are on the board for We Build the Wall. We were there Mm -hmm. for the one previous to that when they were actually uh, at the end of of the last uh, pallet of the wall, or what do you call that, Bobby? when they put the last part of the wall up, we were there for that. And, um, they had the grand opening. And so we were able to meet, we met a uh, man, a lot of people. We were able to meet Brian Kovich. We were able to meet the, the kid, that the young man that uh, did the lemonade stand. I think his name is Brent, uh, Brandon, Brendan, uh, Benson is his name. We were able to meet him and his father and, um, it was really we were able to meet Sheriff Clark and it was we were able to meet the entire board that was there and that was really amazing and there was a lot of people come in. Uh we were able to see them putting the wall how fast they were putting the wall up. It was unbelievable. I mean they were able to complete complete that wall and it was I believe over a mile. Correct?
6: Just under a mile. Just under
5: a mile. It looked much larger than that. They were able to put that up within within a couple of weeks,
1: which is and they
5: did it well under budget they did it for under i believe twenty five um or under twelve million dollars, which the government the other walls that are going up are triple or quadruple that cost, and it takes them much longer but Fisher industry was the company that was putting the the wall up and it was amazing to see it and there was there was there was some you know people who did not want that wall up on the American side and even uh, I, we know that Mexico gave them some resistance. Um, where they, did, they said that there was a, a monument that was right on the other side of the wall that they claimed people needed to have access to. <laughs> but you know as Americans we didn't even want to look at it. I mean it was just a little piece <laughs> of something sticking out of the ground. <laughs> <laughs> And then the water management company was saying, "No, we need access to that." So they made sure that they had a little fence, you know, blocking where they could still get to that. So they Sunland Park was trying everything, but I think it came down to it was just a misunderstanding at the end between whoever was in charge. And now they're welcoming and they're thankful to have the wall up. Um,
1: oh, absolutely! The city officials are grateful. Yeah, because we we had it
5: helps on their side.
1: Yeah, we had several of the people from the the, uh, symposium, you know, on the show on Friday, which is why I was asking, because, I mean, I had a blast talking to uh, former Congressman Tom Tancredo. He had me just peeing in my pants. This is such a very sensitive uh, issue to you and your husband, uh, because there is someone that's been uh, raising their hand in the studio to ask a question. Would you accept a call, or if not, you know, we can just go and move on? Sure. Okay, let me bring this Skype caller in that's been waiting on the line for a while. Uh, Skype caller, you're on the air live with Southern Sense. I'm your hostess, Annie. Our guests are uh, Kayla, and I'm going to mispronounce your name. I'm sorry, Kayan and Bobby Michael. To whom am I speaking?
7: Uh, Come on, Annie. Don't call me a Skype caller. Long time no chat. It's Sarge here. Oh, hello, Sarge. Good luck, Frank. I'm, I'm sorry, Sarge. Yeah, welcome aboard,
1: Sarge. You have a question or a comment for this couple?
7: Yeah, I have a comment. I like to answer the question of your program: Who fights for them, the Angel families? I just like to summarize it, and it is: the answer is none of the Democrats and not enough Republicans, because the Angel families are just collateral damage, the eggs that must be broken so that we can be subjected to the toxic omelet of globalization and um, uh, diminution of U.S. sovereignty. Uh, For the globalist elite folks And we got sanctuary cities We got sanctuary states uh, And to include the largest of them, California We got public officials Who give advice On how to evade immigration and border enforcement We got a mainstream media that lies better Than a combination of Joey Goebbels and Baghdad Bob About the whole doggone thing And you know what the most maddening Part about it is, Annie? We've got this compassion fascism from these people who talk about children in cages and this money of the same people are willing to countenance the butchery of fifty five million infants since Roe versus Wade and they got no problem with any of that. Beyond belief.
1: I got to tell you, uh, Kay, that uh, Frank, he's a longtime friend of the show. And as you can see, he's not short on words, but he's also a veteran and a former law enforcement.
7: So <laughs> sometimes I miss you there, Sarge. Um, <laughs> I, I know. I'm, I'm kind of hard to take, but I got passion, okay? And I'm <laughs> telling sure you those. I love your passion. Do you know that I worked for a gentleman named Jim Oberweiss, who was one of the governor in Illinois, as his regional coordinator in 2005? And I worked with his campaign in that respect. And back then, he was sounding the alarm on illegal immigration. And everybody jumped on him as being an alarmist, and there was absolutely no problem whatsoever. And you just exaggerating things. He had a, a commercial where he went up in a helicopter over Soldier's Field. And, he, and Soldier's Field holds, I don't know, about 50,000, 60,000 people. And he said this many illegal aliens are coming into the United States every six months or so. And they told him, oh, that was the worst, most demagogical commercial since um, uh, the the one the Nazis put out showing Jews as vermin and rats. I mean, they just got of all over him. Now everyone is forced to accept the fact that there's a crisis at the border, and our government, who is empowered to do something about this, is not doing its duty to the extent that it can, not because Donald Trump doesn't want to. He is being impeded not only by his own political party, but by judges that were appointed by Obama and everybody else. And that's why this woman, and God bless you, madam, for coming on here and speaking with you, speaking up, and for the pain of these people and their families, because it's got to be told. It's got to be told. These people know demagoguery like nothing else. And I'm not saying we're being demagogic, but we need to push a few buttons too. But we're doing it for a righteous cause.
1: That's a huge amen uh, I'm sorry, John, I'm going to mute you for a little while So I can get the couple to uh, respond And uh, continue the conversation Just press one twice And I'll know I'll bring you back on, okay? Okay All right um, Kay, and how, how do you I got to say He's very passionate And he knows from where he's talking And you do too So what do you say to someone on the left That's saying, oh, you know you're You're really exaggerating what the problem is what do you do? You take them to the border, shove their face in it, and then just going to turn around and say like AOC does. Oh, but they're in cages. No one's in cages down there. Did you see anyone in cages?
5: We saw no one in cages. And if when I, when they mention cages, I'll say you mean the cages that Obama built, during his era, and nobody is in cages. And and no, they're not being wrapped up in aluminum foil. Those are actual pieces of, of uh, equipment to help. Them from their bodies from getting uh, condu- conducive to the environment in a, in a negative way because they've been in the desert, because they've been in the heat, and really they have better care than what our child. And this is our answer: our child is in a box six feet under. He's not able to eat. He'll never. he we'll never be able to hug him. We we're permanently separated from our child. And this is what we had to tell the Democrats when we spoke in the House and in the Senate. And and they were very aggressive towards us. I mean, it's just what you said earlier, what Sarge is saying, is if we've done something wrong and we refuse to allow them to get away with that and we refuse to back down. And we sit there, we sat there and we listened to all of the foolishness and all the nonsense and all of the lies and a constant um, Democrat senator from out of uh, Southern Florida, down in Miami or somewhere in that area, constantly saying, there are no sanctuary cities in the state of Florida. We had to, to listen to that nonsense, walk through all the protesters who were, who were mostly, looked like they were mostly Americans. But, you know, we had to go through all of that, and we will continue to fight that because we will not back down. No parent should have to go through this. We know there will be more because the the Democrats, the far left, and some of the, the rhinos, the Republicans, uh, are in it for the wrong reason, and they're not in it to protect American lives. And we thank God we have a president that cares. We thank God that we have a, a president who's not politically bought out and sold out. He has his own money. He's a man of standards, and we're seeing that. And he has tried. To those who are saying, "Why don't uh, the president do something?" He has tried numerous times, as you have said. he, he, he you know, his emergency declaration about the border. They, they. Shot that down. They go through the liberal judges. Obama had all of that set up, and the previous administrations didn't make it any better. Um, and but they had it set up so that our borders, we would become part of the open borders society. We know there's a larger picture to this. We know that there's a larger push for this, but we also believe that Donald Trump is in that seat for a reason, and we would be. Uh, not honoring our son's memory, if we did not step in at this perfect time in history, in our nation's uh, history, and our nation's timeline, and open our mouths and utilize his voice that's been silent, because our politicians refuse to do something and say and, and tell the American people, this is real, this is what's happening. They don't care about you if you continue voting. Um, liberal if you continue voting for those who don't care about you apparently they care more about the illegals than they care about you they just said so on the debate they're saying so every time they shoot down wanting to close our borders every time they try and stop our president they said it again on the second debate that they just had so if you continue to vote for people who don't care as much about you they don't care anything about you they don't care about any of us and this is just numbers for them but we refuse to to accept that, and we do tell people, and we do stand up, and we tell them, listen, you look us in the face, and what we found, they can't look us in the face. That's why the the politicians, the, demo, uh, um, the Democrats, uh um, the Democrat, the far left, the rhinos. That's why they will not, when they have their judiciary committee uh, meetings, you never see angel parents in there, because we are the reality. We are the they, they cannot argue us away. They can't just disprove us because we are real, and we will not yeah. shut up. And they know that.
3: I got a question for Bobby. Um, yes. First of all, you'll never see them fly these um, illegals to places like Gaithersburg or Kenny Bunkport. Oh no, they never, never accept those people. But my question is this: as, as a father. I, I cannot imagine what it would be like to have one of my, you know, children taken away, like like you have experienced, and then have to go to court and face the uh, the perp who who was the cause of it, and to to be in court and and be facing this this person who shows no remorse. I've seen videos of of parents who, who just couldn't take it and they rushed person you know in their efforts to exact some kind of um i don't know inflict pain or revenge or whatever uh what kept you from doing that? I mean, as you said, not too far from the the guy who killed your son what what kept you um from charging this guy I believe it was
6: um our faith, you know we're both believers and uh we believe in, you know, even though he committed the crime, he uh came across those borders illegally, you know, we have to forgive him for that. But he should be held accountable. Um the law at that time he could only the judge could have only given him five years in jail or imprisonment and he only received two years. For killing our son. So justice was not served. Justice was not served. And not only that, you know, it was a slap in the face because, like my wife was saying, he had been twice deported. You know, he had been stopped by uh, local law enforcement a few months prior to that. And he was given a citation for not having a valid driver's license. So, had something been done at that time, Chances are our son will still be here today Not only that um, We found out During the court uh, Process that he had been over here In the United States For seven years And he was being harbored Harboring him illegal That law was already placed on the books But it was not being enforced So You know um, We have to shore up And we have to redo our immigration laws and shut down the loopholes in the immigration system. Because if we don't do that and what's happening now is going to continue to happen. But I believe what's happening now, because it's so well orchestrated throughout the United States, you, you see it happening in the socialist state of California, Illinois. I mean, the list is, it just grows and grows. So, Um, What was said earlier about these uh, governors and representatives in these socialist states, why is this happening? In my eyesight, as a veteran, and I thank the gentleman for his service as well, I mean, it's treason. You know, something needs to be done about that as well. Oh, that's a huge
1: end to that one. You know, as you said, these elected officials swore an oath to the Constitution of the United States and to the state they were elected from. Their obligation is not to hold Judiciary Committee meetings to det- decide whether or not Trump did something that is impeachable or not. Their primary responsibility is to you, the constituent that elected them. That's their primary constitutional responsibility, which they seem to forget. Instead, they use these highfalutin words. They use this level, excuse my language, bullshit to pull the bull over the eyes of the public out there. And then the public just gobbles it up because this elected official said so, such and such. It's got to be the gospel and law instead of looking at the actuality of the law and the consequences of that law not being adhered to. And the end result is Something like you and your wife have to endure for the rest of your lives. You're paying a penalty for the rest of your lives, and you did nothing wrong. You raised your son the right way. You did everything that our government has asked you to do, and this is what you get in return. And it is inexcusable. And I I cannot tell you how sorry that you have had to go through this and still to this day and into the future will continue to suffer from
0: Yes,
6: and, you know, uh, yes, no justice. And, you know, as a a veteran, I served 20 years in the United States Navy, and part of our responsibility was to keep our nation safe. And, you know, it was a a huge letdown for me and our family to serve 20 years keeping the United States of America safe and to come home and to find out that our family – Our son was killed on the hands of an illegal alien, somebody that came across the southern border, not once, but twice at that time, illegally. And we had laws on the books to protect American citizens, and at that time, nothing was done. Uh, Congressman Ted this was back in 2010. He took our son's case, Brandon Randolph Michaels to the House floor. And at that time, and you can Google his name and it'll tell you the story, he talked about the uh, national security crisis that we have on our border, southern border. And fast forward, 2019, we still have those issues. It's only amplified now. So why isn't something being done? You know, I hear people uh complain about our president not doing anything. He's doing everything that he can, but it really is not his job. It's Congress job. So my question is why isn't Congress doing something about it?
5: And they don't want to do anything about it. And you know, I can I can attest I can say that as Brandon's mother sitting there in that courtroom to to help answer her questions. We he uh, Bobby was busy focusing on our older son and keeping him from jumping over the wall to go after at this uh Mario tell us this, you know, to go after him. And that's what kept him oh. Bobby calm as our you know, or refocused as a as a father, but make no mistake about it, it's not been uh a, an easy thing and this is what we tell our lawmakers is that I was hospitalized two or three times and just, you just, you know, not being able to eat, the, the shot, the, the grief, things that you cannot, you can't control those things. And um, even as a believer, it's it's a tough, it's something that is injustice and it's something nobody should have to face. And, and we don't because we care about people um, who we'll never meet. We'll never know. A lot of pe- people who are listening to you all, thank you all for having us. I, I wanted to say that. At, we meant to say that at the beginning. Uh, people that are listening and we'll never know, we care about them. And, and it is hellacious to go through this, particularly because we are trying to help secure a nation to bring back uh, our, the republic of our nation, the, the con- to pre- defend and protect the constitution of our nation. And to say that we we are a nation of laws, and the reality is is that um the very soul of our nation is at hand, and we care about those things. we care about this nation that God has given us, and that has been good to us, even though we face this and and you know and every day that goes forward, to care enough to stand up and to fight because we cannot allow America. To be dissolved, we cannot allow those the enemies of America, as, as giant as they may be, to steal our nation from us. We cannot sit by and allow socialism and communism to be the norm and, and to be what we approve of or, or what we what America means, because that's not what America means. And as Black Americans, the way are even more so standing up, because people think this does not happen to people of color, that this is not, you know, there are so many people who are shocked when they see us and say, we didn't know that this was actually happening to black people, which shouldn't make a a difference, but because the left has driven everything on race, we're back to that again. So we, we will speak out and we'll continue doing that. And we thank you all.
1: No, it is. It has been our privilege to have you on the show and Curtis will tell you, you are welcome back um, as many times as we can have you back on, because this is a message that has to get out, and this is a crime against America and Americans. It doesn't matter your social, your economic, your racial, your sexual background. Every last one of us can be a victim, as you have become a victim. It doesn't care what the lines are in society. This crime will course every single line of society and uh it has been my pleasure i'm looking at the clock we're down to our last nine and a half minutes so sarge i know you wanted to ask and make one more comment but we're running out of time and you know how the time constraints are go on the show at in about nine minutes i get shut off uh but it has been such a pleasure to have the two of you on and um Whatever we can do to help to support your foundation, there's a link up on the show page. So, and Curtis will tell you that the most people that listen to the show are not live. They're in the uh, archives. They'll hit on it, and they can click on the link to Brandon Rifle, uh, Brandon Randolph Michael Foundation and click on it and see what they can do to help you uh, with this cause in, in bringing this message out, you know. Illegal alien is still a criminal alien in the United States, and we need our government to wake up to the problems that we have because, as you said, they're not being vetted. They're not being uh, vetted to see whether or not they are actual refugees. They are not being vetted medically or mentally. So we don't know what diseases are now being spread. We have now breakouts of whooping cough of uh, tuberculosis and a lot of other diseases we thought were eradicated more than two decades ago and they are up on the rise smallpox is another one yeah and as you said they're being put on the plane with young children and vulnerable elder people that can get contact these diseases as easily they're on an enclosed plane with poor ventilation, everything, the same air as everyone's breathing, they're not looking at how much of an epidemic problem this is. Once that person crosses the border, it goes exponentially into the communities, uh, the payments for the social services, the school districts, the medical, uh, hospital uh, things that are going on, the law enforcement things that are going on, housing that's being imposed upon us, all because of an illegal invasion of criminals. And God bless you for the hard work you do. That's my rant for the end of the show.
5: <laughs> and we thank you all for having us. And um, as Sarge has said, we, as angel parents, every angel parent that you you hear speaking out, we we are not. We we don't have sponsors. You know, it kind it kind of shows you where we are as a nation because you you know Planned Parenthood and all of these other craziness has all kinds of sponsors, but we, we do not have sponsors. So what we do is we do this on our own dime. So it does help when people go and they, and they donate, um, even yes, when you were at the, uh, coalition, the Frederick Doug, Douglas coalition, when we met you and, and people, when they decide to give us a donation and we don't, we don't charge uh, personally for what we do, but, when people do decide to give a donation, then it's a blessing for us because what what that does is it allows us to continue traveling, to continue to get out because angel parents are speaking out in Arizona and in, in California, um, all over the place. Where you know we are speaking out, and hopefully one day uh, the Democrats will maybe they maybe they'll have to be forced to hear us <laughs> to actually have us in a committee meeting because it burns us up. That they bring in these illegals and the fact that they walk over like Cory Booker has walked over the border, gotten it illegals and brought them back in. We just had another congressperson to do that and Breaking um, the, law. the lady is pregnant. So now we are going to have an anchor baby on our hands that we have to support as a nation. We should be treasonous in its own action. But the fact that they go, you know, they allow them, and then, you know, the mass media is highlighting these stories of them crying and all of this, you know, their babies and all of this stuff. It just doesn't move us. We feel for the children because they're innocent. But if they would take a moment and allow angel parents to speak out and say, this is what real separation looks like, this is what injustice looks like. The fight, and you will see the common thread among every angel parent. Every angel story that you hear is that illegals are not held at the same accountability level as the American citizens. They're given a slap on the wrist, as in our case, our son's case, two years, and he was deported again. And he may be here, he may be back, and we don't know.
1: Well, I want to thank both of you, Kay and Bobby Mitchell, for joining us Um, in the Website that you run, the foundation, is the Brandon Randolph Michael Foundation. There's a link on the show page. People can click on it and give you a hand on this one. Thank you for joining us. We're out of time, um, and it has been a pleasure. And, Curtis, please make sure that this couple definitely gets back on the show. Uh, he's got your number. <laughs> he's definitely got your number, and so do we.
3: Almost oh, certainly. So thank you.
1: <laughs> and God bless you for the hard work.
3: Y'all take care. All
1: right, so much. Thank you for having us.
3: No right. problem. Anytime. All
1: right, Curtis. As I said, we're down to our last few minutes. And Sarge, I'm sorry. We we, we just ran out of time on the clock here. Uh, but Sarge, please keep on calling you to the show. It's always so much fun to talk to you. Uh, Curtis, we will be back here. Um, you've got two people lined up. Finish filling in that because uh, we do have uh, Casey Pipes will be joining us. He's got a book about Richard Nixon, an unusual take on it, and I think you'll find it very fascinating. Some of the stuff that's going on today, actually we can trace as far back as <laughs> in Richard Nixon's day when he was battling Jimmy Carter. Uh, so oh, we yeah. have Casey Pipes on. Uh, you've got uh, two Meyer. people lined up, and uh, Harvey is also going to be. So please line yep. up the two of them.
0: So, Harvey.
1: Right. Uh, So we'll be back here next Friday, same bat time, same bat station. Thank you, everyone, for that participated in the chat rooms and in the studio. It has been a lot of fun. Uh, Also, check out SHR Media, my appearance last night on the Berserk Bobcat Saloon. Hopefully, I will have that episode up. It's Annie Unleashed. So I leave you all with that thought in mind. And our closing show uh, song is When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. Until then, I say good night, and God bless, and thank you, Curtis.